0: Over Season 3, Episode 1 is still over, but we're just getting started digging into your feedback here on the Leftovers Feedback Show on post show recaps. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wiggler. I'm joined here by Antonio Mazzaro, and we are about to cover an episode of The Leftovers that was alternately titled We Are the Millerisms. What's going on, Antonio?
1: Who was that written by?
0: That was written by uh, John Murphy Cochran. John
1: Murphy Cochran, my favorite, uh, my favorite. I think TV he actually writer. was just
0: involved in The Millers. I don't think that he had anything to do with We Are the Millers. But maybe <laughs> I'm mixing it up. There was a lot of Miller's action going on once upon a time before it was relevant all of a sudden again here with The Leftovers.
1: How are you, Josh?
0: I am doing really well. (laughs) Uh, We are a few days removed from The Leftover season premiere. This is our second podcast about that episode. We're going to be trying to give you two podcasts a week about every episode. As we mentioned during our quick react to the premiere, uh, this is a very important show to Antonio and I. And this is the final year of that show. And we want to send it out in style.
1: We really talk about style. I mean, if you want style, we're the two guys you call. We,
0: I don't think that's true.
1: I know it's not true.
0: <laughs> you know, I think that Kevin Garvey has incredible cop style. Like I feel like the the just the look was amazing. Like I I, I was in my rewatch this was something I was noticing is one of the things is I think Tommy looks incredibly young. Because he's completely clean shaven. I think the buzz cut does him no favors, but like the uniform is almost a little awkward on him, like a little bit baggy and just sort of gives him the aesthetic of the rookie. But whereas Kevin Garvey is like the does not give a crap cop who's wearing jeans to work, just looks so suave. It's incredible.
1: Is that why Kevin's able to just roll up uh, when Tommy is having a problem with those Gary Busey guys and just cop block him?
0: He's able to cop block him? Is that yeah. what that
1: was? Yeah. I The thing about Justin Thoreau in this show is, and my friend, a credit to my friend Andrew Brenner for, for saying this, he does not look. I mean, we never see him working out. We saw him jogging in season one, very memorably, I might add. Uh, but we never see him. He's got an eight pack. When does he lift weights? All we know is he chokes himself. Yes. This guy, he looks like a guy who hangs out in L.A. and wears really tight tight t-shirts and and spends time with people like Jennifer Aniston and he doesn't look like uh mapleton or jardin police officer he just looks like he came right out of la and he's on this show so props to justin Thoreau for being a handsome af but it doesn't necessarily always fit it definitely stands out he doesn't look like a small town police officer my friend andrew his dad is a small town police officer and no offense to small town police officers out there but he said at least 70 percent of them are fat and so, he's,
0: he's a he's a small police officer from a town or it's a small town and he's a normal size yeah, he's
1: officer. a small town police officer yes yeah. uh, <laughs> he's a very small man. No, I just uh, I just think that Justin Thoreau really stands out on this show uh, in terms of not necessarily fitting the the mold that he's placed into. But yeah, Ke- Tommy does really stand out. Kevin's style, though, is unmistakable. And listen, uh, kind of guy that you really want to get behind.
0: Yeah. Wow. Uh, so we'll follow do we have, around. Do we have, OK, I'm glad you clarified. Do, you, do we have anything else on Kevin's fashion or fashion in general? I have to assume that that was all we're going to get into it here on the feedback show this week. Too much else to
1: cover this week. It is. No one has asked us yet, Josh, if we're going to get an episode about when and why Kevin got his tattoos.
0: Oh, good. I'm glad. I think with only you know seven episodes left now, don't think we're getting that one.
1: I, hope not. That would I be, hope not. That would be quite terrible.
0: I hope not. All right. Well, the purpose of this podcast, our secondary leftovers podcast every week. I don't want to say secondary. That makes it feel like it's a lesser than podcast. It's a secondary I, departure. It's a secondary departure. No, I think this is going to be a pretty robust podcast. But the whole purpose here is we are going through your feedback that you have sent our way through various different mechanisms. That's perhaps through our feedback form on Post Show Recaps, which is postshowrecaps.com slash feedback. Perhaps on Twitter, Antonio is at AC Mazzaro, I'm at Howard. Perhaps you send it that way, perhaps in our comments section on postshowrecaps.com. Uh, new as of this announcement, actually, uh, Antonio, is that we have an email address. We have uh, leftovers at postshowrecaps.com or the leftovers at postshowrecaps.com where you can send your emails. And this is the podcast where we're going to be answering all of that stuff and we're going to use your feedback to guide us through a leftovers conversation. And I think it's going to be pretty exciting
1: that's great and uh, josh if people don't want to miss an episode what can they do
0: well they can subscribe antonio that would be the thing to do that'd be the best thing to do and if you are uh if you are not already subscribed it's very easy to do that you can go to com slash leftovers itunes takes us takes you to our itunes page and you can also with your favorite podcatcher subscribe at com slash feed slash leftovers those are the correct links right
1: those are the correct links. Those believe, are the
0: correct yeah. links. So subscribe that way. Honest reviews, your ratings, all that stuff—very much appreciated. As we are trying to start back this podcasting season of the leftovers, anything you can do to help us on that end, we greatly appreciate it. Uh, but be your authentic selves.
1: Yeah, well, and it, it impacts how we even structure this show. We had reviews asking us to do certain things or to structure this uh, this particular show. A and we buckle
0: in the face of criticism. like Any criticism, like you're immediately going to greatly impact exactly how we do things.
1: Speak for yourself. I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. We do. We just fall. We crumble. No, somebody. it wasn't criticism. Somebody thought, hey, it would be a good idea if you structured it a certain way. They said it in a review on iTunes, so we noted it, and here we are. So, yeah, honest reviews, feedback, star ratings, always appreciated. Your comments, though, really drive this show. So as Josh uh, hinted at or as he hit... This is exactly what we need and what we want, and by the way, Josh, we got a lot of great comments this week, so I'm eager to get into them.
0: All right, well, let's waste no time, because we got a lot to cover. Uh, Very robust episode, first episode of The Leftovers' final season, and there's, uh, to use one of our favorite words, Antonio, a ton to unpack. So let's begin the unpacking. Where should we start?
1: Let's start with, let's begin at the beginning. We didn't really lean into this much during the premiere episode podcast, during our recap, but Josh... No opening credits this season.
0: No opening credits, at least in this episode. At Who knows if this that's episode. the case for the whole thing. But, yeah, uh, let let the mystery be. Uh, don't even ask where it's where it's gone because it is not here, at least not yet.
1: Yeah, we had comment from Travis saying, Guys, you buried the lead. Where was the opening theme song in the first episode? There was some debate over whether or not we would get an opening credits theme song change. I, for one, was hoping to get a zany sitcom-style piece overlaid by still frames of our wacky characters laughing or shrugging their shoulders at the fourth wall. Josh, we know that uh, from Damon Lindelof's comments that he watched other shows while he was filming, uh, while they were writing and shooting this season of The Leftovers. One of those was Mr. Robot, and Mr. Mm. Robot had a credits sequence like that in season two. Is that something we could see in The Leftovers?
0: I was just going to say we're waiting for uh, the leftovers to get the Miller Boyette treatment, and they already have the Millerism Boyette treatment. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I don't know if it would be the eighty. The only sit, the 80s sitcom thing that The Leftovers has really leaned into is the Perfect Strangers thing. Uh, we heard in season one that the whole cast of Perfect Strangers had departed. And then in season two, we got a little button of seeing Mark Lynn Baker actually not departed, hiding somewhere in South America or in Central America. So maybe we'll get a Perfect Strangers uh, call out uh, or something to that effect in season three at some point. I'm not sure if a sitcom-style opening would be too much for The Leftovers. We had a flashback in this episode. I'm not sure how much we can talk about breaking the fourth wall. Uh, Kristen Schmidt wanted to know, have previous seasons started this way without a credit sequence? Not to my knowledge. Uh, I'm wondering if you remember anything and if you have any meaning to assign to this, Josh.
0: I can't remember if previous seasons have started this way. Though You just did the rewatch. I feel like that should be fairly fresh for you, Antonio.
1: Yeah, the the first episode of the first season may not have the full credits. I honestly don't really remember uh, if they make their debut in, season, in episode two, but they're there in season one. I don't know that there's any meaning to it. Like, oh, we didn't get it in the premiere episode. And the fact that we didn't get it now, I think it's I think the fact that we're asking and that we're asking these questions is really the most meaningful thing about it. Uh, because that's what the show does, right? The the show asks us to ask ourselves questions and it's about this search for meaning that Kristen Schmidt is asking about. Like she said, what does it mean? And that's uh, that's the number one question about the leftovers, right? So not, by not including a credit sequence, we're spinning again and we're looking for meaning in something that may or may not have meaning and it will be interesting to see. Uh, If they lean into this a little bit, as Travis indicated, maybe they break the fourth wall. Maybe they do something in each episode that's a little outlandish. It wouldn't surprise me if we saw a very similar opening to this one uh, with a different religious story. Uh, It seems like this season is leaning into the religious aspect and the the Bible and seven years and all of this. And we started with this religious panic and the, the Millerism and all of it. It wouldn't it wouldn't shock me if we saw multiple versions of that same search for meaning religious story throughout the course of this season. I can see that being something they would do. As for the fourth wall, I don't know. That would be unusual for this show, but not something – I feel like they're pretty brave and bold. Can you see them doing what, what kind of Travis describes, like a, a zany uh, kind no, of a sitcom? No, no,
0: no, I don't think so. I don't okay. think that's The Leftovers' wheelhouse. I think what The Leftovers' is wheelhouse is, at least in regards to opening credits, is flexible. It's a flexible thing. The first season was its own really weird sort of biblical mosaic type of deal, and then last season, season two, was a little more folksy. You know, it was a little a little more upbeat, which I think was in—I um, don't know. You don't really think of The Leftovers as upbeat, but I think that it got a little more upbeat in Season 2 than it was in Season 1. What I could see is a completely third new thing happening uh, for Season 3. I don't think that we'll see the Let the Mystery Be uh, credits ever again. I agree. I think, I think those are done. Uh, I could see leftover Season 3, the final season, having no credits at all, or I could see that that's just how they wanted to launch their first episode— or uh it could just be a completely new set of things, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing what that is if that's the case
1: and our characters this season aren't really aren't really eager to let the mystery be uh kevin uh, maybe is wanting to run from what others consider the mysteries about Kevin, but John and uh, Matt uh, and Michael are all really leaning heavily into the mystery of Kevin specifically and really reveling in that so they 're not they 're not looking to let the mystery be they 're looking to write the mystery and and write the story and that 's a very different thing than season two where they all our characters move to miracle and they were looking for a new life, not necessarily struggling or looking for answers or trying to solve mysteries. Uh, it, it became that, uh, and that became an issue with Kevin and Patty. But their, their coming to Miracle in general wasn't necessarily to answer mysteries. It was just simply to get to a place that had this meaning uh, and and maybe revel in that a little bit, as I said. So I think we have a different style of Season 3 and a different story. They've said when they write these seasons that... Because the first season was based strictly on Tom Parada's book, that they've looked at each season as its own standalone novel. It is in the same series, in the same universe, but that the themes and everything maybe are are tying in. But each season is a standalone novel that has its own story. That is addressed within the context of that season. Last season, it was the disappearance of the girls and the aftermath and fallout of everything and how that impacted characters from people that, that were members of the family of the girls to people like Nora, who just showed up. But that was one set story. So the story of this season, the the first uh, the episode, is called The Book of Kevin. So it does seem to be about this seven years later. How are people looking at previous things that happened on the events of the show and sa- and trying to assign meaning to them? So there is a different thing going on here and I don't think we're going to see Let the Mystery Be again. Uh, It was just too bad. I thought the third verse of that song was pretty on point and I talked about that in the preview that I did for this season. So I'll be interested to see what we lean into and what we do with this season. We did get a song in that opening, in that cold open.
0: I saw the sign.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. Yeah, Uh, that's a different one. No, you're talking about The Judgment. Yes, you're talking about a different one. You're not talking about Ace of Base. Uh, But yeah, we, we did get that. So It seems to be like this is not a season, Josh, where people want to let the mystery be. There is a big mystery that is introduced in this episode, and it's a perfect transition here to talk about it now because we had a lot of comments about the Sarah Durst story, if you will. Uh, and what is going on here with this mystery and if we should just let it be or not we cannot let it be on this feedback show so I would like to get into that uh, yeah me too the whole
0: the Sarah Durst of it all which was clearly the big bombshell that was dropped in this episode at the very end of the episode where suddenly we're in a different place it seems like we're in a different time and it seems like we're hanging out with Nora Durst except she looks older and has a different name so what the frack is going on there it's been a few days now any further clarity on what's going on with that antonio
1: No further clarity, a lot more questions. And you mentioned time. We had uh, had a question from Alex Kuntz, uh, who we know is a big fan of these shows, and we uh, have always appreciated Alex's feedback on them. Alex said, We know that Lindelof loves playing around with the audience's assumptions about time. I originally thought that the opening scene could have taken place in the future after whatever apocalyptic event happens. I think that theory is pretty clearly debunked, since we literally see the year in those scenes being in the 1800s. However... Do you think Lindelof could be playing around with time anywhere else? This is an insane theory. That's what we're here for, Alex. But could the last scene be taking place in the past and Sarah is just Nora's ancestor? Uh,
0: no, I don't think so. That would be hard hard to imagine, right? Like, I, I feel like, I don't know, I, I wasn't paying much attention to, you know, to signs of what time this actually is. Are there years stamped anywhere that you can see in that in that scene?
1: No, I don't see any years. We read the lack of cars and petrol, uh, as has been pointed out by our Australian listeners, as perhaps meaning that it was post-apocalyptic. But I I have some other thoughts on that. I see some bike reflectors on the back of Nora's bike, which I'm not sure what the, the utility of that would be if there were no cars. There are all kinds of power lines leading into that church. There are none leading into Nora's house, which would imply that if this is Nora or Sarah or some other character, that person is like Kevin Sr. in Australia, perhaps living off the grid, but the church does not seem that way. There, there are power lines there. There are roads that she rides her bike on. This isn't the post-nuclear kind of world, I don't think. Uh, we see a lot of lovely nature. We don't know exactly what event may or may not have happened, but this does seem to be in the future timeline of The Leftovers, and it does seem to be Nora Durst to me an older version of her denying that the name Kevin means anything to her. I don't think this is set in the past uh, and this is just an ancestor. We had uh, some other theories about that though. Our Philly, our great friend, our Philly said, I know everyone is looking at Sarah as though she is Nora, but given this is the leftovers and Lindelof, I'm curious if you guys considered that she may be someone we've never actually met before. Is it possible? Our Philly says that Sarah is actually a Garvey. And that Nora and Kevin may yet find some kind of happily ever after. Is she some future descendant of the Garveys? Is this way in the future, Josh?
0: Yeah, I don't think that that's impossible. Um, You could you could certainly see an outcome like that. I don't love that when they get, uh, you know, when when you have an actor who is playing another role in the same show like i feel like you got to be careful with that kind of thing unless you're you and mcgregor and you're playing two very distinct ewan mcgregors who are twin brothers or something like that so i'd be a little wary of sarah durst being played by carrie coon and being like the daughter of kevin and nora in the future unless it's a really good story and it's worth telling then you know pretty much any rule can be uh obstructed for that reason um so i don't know um I get the sense that this is Nora. I really feel like this is Nora. I feel like there's so much more power to this moment if that's Nora Durst, and we are now being given a glimpse into what Nora's life is going to look like, and hopefully it's not as miserable as it kind of seems on the surface.
1: Fair enough. Let's say it is Nora, and I agree with you. I do agree that it's most likely Nora. I think that's a much easier story to tell, and I think there's a lot of power in Nora herself, Denying Kevin—that's the—that's the the thing—is how do we get there? Because they seem to be on great terms. At the beginning of this season, uh, they don't seem to be handcuffing anyone to beds anymore. And their life seems to be happy. I'm sure there are things going on beneath the surface, which we'll find out. Nora does have a broken wrist or hand or something. And I don't think that's something that just accidentally happened. I think that is something that's going to come up. But at least on the surface, they seem to be on pretty good terms. Which, considering where we were near the end of Season 2, is got to be considered a win. Nora and Kevin had left, and everything there was... Really was really just something that was up in the air. Uh, Nora left because she was concerned about Kevin's craziness and maybe concerned that she was causing it. And maybe Kevin has left it behind. Maybe he hasn't. The choking is not really a good sign for him. But they seem to have left behind the thought that Nora was causing a problem for Kevin. And so they seem to be on good terms. I think the, the better story then is this is Nora in the future. And what happens ultimately uh, to get her to the point where she's denying Kevin. I think that's the better story. But, Josh, Peter Politano has posited a theory and sent this in. And it could be something where it is Nora, but uh, perhaps a different story. Peter says, guys, the flash forward you presume to be Nora surviving the apocalypse could easily be seen as a previous life or future destination. Many theologists and spiritualists believe in the journey of the soul. Most believe this journey is nonlinear. This could be flashing to her journey, not necessarily tied to the fate of the world of the leftovers. They alluded to this in international assassin told Kevin to stop thinking in a linear fashion. Patty was slippery and didn't operate that way. She was dead and the soul does not travel in literal time. Only human life as we know it does. This scene may be Nora's resting place of her tortured soul, her ultimate destination in an apparently much simpler time. What do you think, Josh?
0: Well, I don't think that it's out of the question that this could be some sort of parallel existence. Uh, I, we certainly have seen other worlds than the, than the one that we're in. Uh, you know, the traditional mortal coil that we're seeing for the most part on The Leftovers, or presumably seeing for the most part on The Leftovers. But we've been to the hotel. You know we know that that's a thing, and Patty has been pushed into the well, and that was a, that was its own thing. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that the world we're seeing Nora inhabiting or Sarah, as it were, inhabiting that that could be some sort of similar plane of existence. And maybe we're in like some sort of Inception level thing where when we get there in the finale, Kevin Garvey is going to have to like. Wake Nora up to to who he is and to who she is and what's really going on. You know, some sort of version of something that would be uh, that you would find in Lost's final. I season.
1: knew that that was going to come up. Yeah, we but, can't but, but I don't but
0: but I don't even mean that. Th- but I don't mean that necessarily as a negative thing. You know, the the flash sideways of of Lost. If you are a Lost fan, you know what that is. If you're not, then you have no idea. But uh, if you know what that is, like I feel like that kind of comes out of nowhere. Like there's no prep for it, and certainly what it ultimately is. I think even in rewatching that final season, for me at least, on multiple rewatches, it's been really hard to reconcile. If there is some sort of quote-unquote flash sideways type of thing going on in The Leftovers, The Leftovers dropped that shoe into the mix last year, so I'd be fine. I'd be totally fine with something like that. Um, I just get the sense that this is reality. Like, I I feel like the, the balls of a move like this really comes down to, I am showing you what the future world looks like, and one of the characters you know really well is there in some capacity what the world looks like. We're not really telling you that in great detail. Why this character is acting the way that they're acting, we are telling you almost nothing about that. But we are showing you where we're driving towards. So that's why I feel like it's a fixed future point, and it's something that is grounded in reality. And I also think that The Leftovers' is bread and butter has been when it's straddling that line, when it is something that's taking place in our world but could have multiple meanings and multiple definitions. Um, so I think that that's that's where we're going. But it wouldn't be completely out of nowhere if the Sarah Durst scenes exist on a different plane of existence.
1: It's tough, right? Because you, it's really well articulated there why it could be done well or how it could be done well. But so much of the show is, is haunted by the specter of Lost, as we've talked about. And that whole final season of Lost, without spoiling it for those who haven't watched it, it, it just is so... Much of a lightning rod. I can't imagine that he would steer into that and go right back there. And yet, this show has been a lot of doing that. So I don't know, ultimately, if that's where we're going with this Nora storyline. We had other uh, good comments from Dave Becker and from Jason Burning uh, about this very thing. People are interested in where and when this is happening, for sure. But uh, we have to talk about – and we'll talk about this later in the podcast as as we're going to talk about a more overarching theory of where we think this season might go. We're, we're saving that for later because – Uh, people might not want to listen to that part uh, from our experience in previous podcasts. But uh, there are some other factors in this final final scene that we'll get into. Generally speaking, though, it does seem to be in some version of the future. And I understand those who read the the oddness of that future, the desolation, if you will, the the rural nature of it, the fact that she's off the grid, uh, as perhaps some kind of cataclysmic event has happened. I think, as I said, I'm still leaning heavily on the fact that this is Nora, the fact that she's denying that she may or may not know Kevin or that she doesn't the name means nothing to her means that whatever cataclysmic event might have happened was also a personally cataclysmic one that has put her into this position. I think we're in the current timeline of the leftovers just in the future. We're not in a parallel universe, we're not in some soul cycle, but I think that those are fair observations and I could see any of them coming into play. Honestly, Nora
0: might be into soul cycle given how much she's into biking in this episode.
1: <laughs> You're talking about a different soul cycle, I think. Oh, okay uh yeah this is uh yeah we're just spinning around through the story really uh i don't know ultimately where we end up with that uh and if that's a it just feels like an epilogue to me uh it doesn't feel like a different timeline uh or a different dimension or anything like that it feels like a it feels like this is just what what this area of australia looks like uh we had a funny uh tweet from uh dan liebke who said i live in melbourne australia and can't even walk my dogs without bumping into carrie coon and elderly makeup so
0: (laughs) i wish that was true if that was true i would to Melbourne Australia
1: <laughs> me too I wish there was a portal I live in Melbourne Kentucky I wish there was a portal between all Melbourne's in the world I could go to Florida and then Australia I'm sure there's other ones this would be it's great. not
0: impossible that there is and you're just not looking hard enough
1: I've looked pretty hard man. Is there a, looked...
0: a pizza porter portal in uh, Melbourne, Kentucky?
1: This is a you're really jumping around. Wow, this is amazing. Uh no, there's no pizza portal here. Uh but maybe Sorry, there's... it was a
0: tangent, but it was a justified tangent.
1: Maybe there's a pizza port key, Josh. Maybe Got I it. just need to put my hands on every pizza in Melbourne, Kentucky until I find the port key. Uh but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what we're doing here. I have a feeling my confidence lies in the fact that we're we're playing a pretty straight in terms of this is Nora. This is an elderly version of Nora. It looks exactly like her. There are too many parallels to the bike riding that Nora does in this episode, which we see in Jarden when she's riding the bike away, putting the cap on, doing all those things to the Nora that we see in this version, this Australian scene, whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, uh, Sarah Durst, she's riding the bike, looking very similar. This is Carrie Coon playing the role. I think it's it's easy enough to say this is straightforward. It's It's after the years of the main events of this season, and something has happened with her and Kevin that has caused her to say it doesn't mean anything to her. And we'll we'll, I said we'll talk about some other parts of that later. But moving on, speaking of something happening that that we're not that's not really explained and involving Nora, we had a question from our great friend, A.J. Mass, who talked about the leftovers with me here last year. A.J. wanted to know what is the potential that Erica actually stole Lily to replace her lost Evie?
0: Yeah. And just to set that up, because it has been a little while, uh, Holy Lily is obviously the baby of Holy Wayne that came into the custody of Kevin and Nora at the end of season one. And they adopted her early on in season two. And Nora almost gave her life to protect baby Lily. And it's hard to imagine her giving up baby Lily without a big fight. So why is Lily gone? Um, As for Erica, Erica last season was talking about how before the departure uh, or before Evie had escaped rather uh, that she was going to run away, that she was going to leave John behind. She was going to leave her family behind. Uh, So the fact that she's not in Jarden anymore, given what she confessed to Nora, that's not a huge shock. The fact that these two are both gone. I don't know. Do you think that they're connected? We talked about like, isn't the, isn't, isn't it possible that this is bringing Lily's actual mother back into the mix? And like, could she have shown up to get her daughter back? Uh, could that be a way, or could it be something a little more nefarious? And Erica just took this child.
1: I think it could be either. the The question is ultimately: if you're Nora Durst and you have Lily, we saw her nearly give her life to protect it as uh, to protect Lily, as you pointed out in the last episode of last season. Why would you just let that happen? Like, why isn't she out looking for Lily? Why isn't she, if Erica took her, trying to track Erica down and doing everything she can to get Lily back? It doesn't seem like Erica could just walk away with that baby and Nora Nora would just sit down and take it. That seems highly unlikely. So then you get into a scenario where maybe Nora gave Lily to Erica, uh, as a replacement or as some sort of uh, token, or just uh, as a, as a way of saying it's a horrible thing that happened to you. Uh, why don't you have Lily in your life? Here, have you... my child to replace yours. It seems, seems unlikely, right? It seems unlikely, right? Like so. These are the things where. Uh, then the other option is something happened to Lily. Something medical or something horrible happened. There was a huge loss, and that. We don't, that's something where that that would seem to be something that Nora would take incredibly hard, considering that she was super concerned last season that she was a lens, that she was somebody who, by some weird virtue of science or what have you, was in a position where others around her were in jeopardy. And we saw how much that impacted her and concerns about that, how much that impacted her. She has this huge fight with Erica about it last season in Lens. And then when she comes back, poor Kevin's waiting. there like, we have to talk. I'm seeing someone I'm seeing Patty Levin. And that's when Nora and Kevin go splitsville because Nora's like, I am really wreaking havoc in people's lives. And that is something that is on her mind. I have a feeling that if Lily, if something bad happened to Lily, then Nora would look at it and say, I'm really a problem. Like, everything around yeah. me, everything I touch turns turns brown. Like, everything I touch turns terrible. Like, everything I touch wilts and fades and spoils. So, I I just have a hard time, and I'm using that because her name's Lily, by the way. Uh, I'm, I, I'm just having a hard time wondering, ultimately, which of these is the most likely of all three unlikely scenarios, considering how we see Nora Durst in this season.
0: I think that the likeliest to me... Because if Lily is dead, like, I feel like things are a lot more grim. Um, Right, that's
1: what I'm saying for sure. Nora takes that much harder.
0: Yeah, unless, you know, it was years ago and, like, now she's at that point in the stage of grieving where it's, like, two years later and at least, like, you know, you'll never get that back. And you'll always be haunted by it, but, like, you can operate on a daily level. Um, you know, like that could be, that could be the case. We
1: saw what Nora was like three years after the departure when she lost her family, Josh. She was hiring prostitutes to shoot her.
0: Sure, well, we haven't seen that stuff yet. Frankly, we don't know how she broke her hand. Maybe a prostitute broke her hand. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <You> know, fair <laughs> enough. You know, if, that,
1: if that were to happen, you would never tell someone that.
0: We're one episode into The Leftovers' this final season, and one of the things that this show really likes to do, uh, not all has always been doing this, but since it started has really stuck to this, is they like to tell you an episode from a perspective, and we haven't really seen Nora's perspective on things yet. So things could flip. We have no idea what that looks like. You know, Maybe she is doing something. You know, Maybe she has her own version of the plastic bag around the head in her private life that she's not telling anybody about. So we just don't know.
1: Maybe she, uh, maybe she went to a bathroom and saw a nice pristine paper towel dispenser and just punched it until it was very dented and caused a serious problem.
0: That's possible. It's not impossible. Uh, so I think, I think my inclination is that Lily is alive. Uh, unless this is years after a death, and even then, like I feel, I feel like that would be too traumatic for the way that they talk about Lily on this show. I think the likeliest scenario is that Nora gave Lily away uh, to somebody who could be Erica. Like I think that there is an argument for why to why to give Lily to Erica or Lily's actual mother, whose name was Christine. I think Christine. That I, that's
1: I think why we leaned into the Christine thing is from a. Logical standpoint and from an impact on the character standpoint and for what we know it makes the most sense right that Christine would come back into the picture Nora would lose her would, would lose Lily through some kind of legal wrangling and not through any fault of her own. Uh, And it wouldn't be a thing where Erica stole her and Nora wasn't looking for her. Uh, And it wouldn't be a thing where Nora had to go through and say, you lost your daughter. Take my baby, which is such a weird thing. That's a weird thing to to say. But I I think like you could imagine,
0: you know, a Nora Durst who is uncertain about her influence on other people's happiness. And if she's concerned about Lily being in Jarden or is concerned about Lily being in her custody for whatever reason, you could see Nora Durst making some sort of decision to get Lily out of that environment. Like that's the most loving thing that she could do for that child. So there could be something like that where Nora did willingly give Lily away and has, you know, this tough exterior where she's like, I'm totally fine. And everyone knows you're totally not. Um, that's where my money is right now. That's my thinking is that Lily is gone because of a choice that Nora made and Nora looking in the mirror and being like, I lost my entire family. I can lose another person and I will still be alive and I will still be strong and maybe underestimating just how much of an emotional toll that could take on her. That's where my head is at in terms of where is Lily right now.
1: It's possible. But as we said, I think where we agree for sure is that Things are not always as they seem on the surface in The Leftover. So just because things seem good between Nora and Kevin uh, doesn't mean that they're all, they all have it together. And I think the broken wrist is a big sign of that. Even though they seem very loving, they tell each other they love each other, that doesn't mean that they're not processing their own stuff in private. And we saw that happen with Kevin in the bag. And we don't know where Nora's going on her bike ride. We don't know what happened to her wrist. But maybe she's not processing things as well as it seems. And we are going to find that out. We had an overarching question that plays into this from Nina Stoddard. Nina wanted to know, the premiere episode introduced a lot of new questions. What happened to Lily? How did Nora hurt her hand? Where is Erica? Etc. We've seen the Leftovers revisit previous events and add clarity to them. With only seven episodes left, do you expect these questions to be answered via flashback or through exposition? So, we talked about the point of view episodes, Josh. Do you think one big point of view episode maybe in the next couple, uh, because we think we might be on the move from uh, Jarden at some point soon, do you think that one big point of view episode here is going to influence or, or give a lot of these answers pretty quickly.
0: Ah, uh, pretty quickly. You know, it, I do think that a final season, it, it behooves you to just like really kick things up a notch with the storytelling. So I hope so. I ho- You know, I hope that we have some clarity on some of this stuff as soon as next week. Um, And I kind of expect
1: it. Is yeah. that wrong to expect that? No, I don't think so. I think we're going to get... My my thinking is ultimately, Kevin's dad's in Australia. We know from all of our previews, even when we talked last season, that Damon Lindelof compared uh, Scott Glenn uh, to a starting pitcher, but they've used him as a relief pitcher, and that they really wanted to lean into – The Kevin Sr. part of the story and that's what he said before any of this was was in the can or anything that was just what he said were his preliminary thoughts of if they got a third season what are some of the things they would do so so, pardon me so we have a feeling that Kevin Garvey is going to be heavily senior is going to be heavily heavily featured in this season and if that's the case it seems like these characters are going to Australia Nora mentions that she's got a work trip to Australia like these are things that we know are going to be happening at some point and if that's the case if we're getting away from Miracle, I feel like we're going to get the miracle answers pretty quickly in the beginning of this season. So it does seem like something that we're going to see in the next couple of episodes. And I, I think they can dispense those with a flashback episode showing what the events were like in the, in the, before the time jump, if you will. What made Erica leave Jarden? What happened to Lily? I think we can get those answers in a miracle-focused episode, probably focused on, on John uh, and maybe Erica, uh, if, if Regina King's even available for the season. I have no idea if she signed on For this season if she's going to show up this season It seems to be a big question I think that If we're getting that though we'll probably get that While the the events of the show are really Still focused in Miracle
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, there were a few, there were a few, you know, gaps last season in season two where we were expecting like maybe a flashback would fill in the answers, but the show doesn't really do that too much. I don't feel like there's a ton of flashback on the left.
1: No, there is the, but I think Nina points out that the show sometimes will show events from a different perspective to add Like we know Kevin Garvey ended up in the water. We eventually found out and saw that he made eye contact with Evie and remembered that
0: that kind of thing I expect, but like a, a flashback episode in Miracle. I mean, I guess that's the Garvey's at their best in season one. So it's not, it's not unprecedented, but I think with only eight episodes in your final season, I don't know. I think that, you know, any details from the time jump that we're missing, I expect we'll probably get in dialogue or, uh, you know, from the ramifications of a future event that will reflect the past.
1: Yeah. And if not, if you go into exposition, if Erica's still alive, there could be the exposition storytelling of that story, and we've seen The Leftovers play with time like that, not strictly a flashback, but events that were happening prior to the the timeline of, of where we are in the, the prime story. So I'm thinking of, for example, the stuff that was going on with Lori and Tommy last season when we saw Lori setting up her guilty remnant landing pad uh, and Tommy pulling people out. That was all happening while the events of Miracle were already happening, while we were well into that story. We were seeing things that had happened before that. At one point, Lori calls Kevin in the main story and says, hey, where's Tommy? And we don't know what has happened in their story since there are these things that are happening in parallel uh, or as time passes in one story, we're not seeing the full story of another and we sometimes go back to it. So I think we could see that. Like we saw Meg, for example, going to Miracle, Texas a year before All of our other characters ended up in Miracle, Texas, and we saw that happen in the context of that later Meg episode. It was technically a flashback, but it wasn't a flashback like the Garveys at their best. It could have shown they could have shown that at any point. That's a that's a thing that probably occurred prior to her joining the Guilty Remnant at all. So that was technically a flashback to season one. Uh, it was just told in an, in an interesting way because we got the full Meg story. So it wouldn't shock me to see an Erica Murphy episode this season that was very similar to that Meg story and that filled in a lot of these details.
0: As long as the music is as good, I remember the music in that episode being fantastic. Oh
1: yeah. We had White Lions with Grandmaster Flash. We had freaking Sturgill Simpson, my man, Sturgill Simpson, uh, singing his cover of The Promise while Meg and uh, Tommy danced in a bar. Like, there was really, really great music in that episode, for sure. It just, the leftovers in music is something everybody always wants to talk about, and they should, because. The music influences in the show are fantastic. But what about Josh? Speaking of music in the leftovers, what about that Nirvana t shirt that Jill was wearing? <laughs> I didn't notice she was wearing a Nirvana t shirt. Yeah, she's Lena, she's in her Nirvana phase. I don't know. This is uh this is fascinating. She's in college, she's gone away. We see her come back for Tommy's party, but we had some questions about Jill. Uh, the, ba- the, the It can be summed up by the question that Alex Wilpon asked me, which is, do you think that's the last time that Kevin will see Jill? That's Ooh. the joke Jill tells. Yeah. I mean, I could see it. We only have so many episodes still to go
0: and so much plot to cover that I could see, especially if we know that season three is at least going to be partly in Australia at some point. You got to figure that Kevin is going to be in Australia for that, if not the entire cast. So is there an opportunity for Kevin and Jill to have more screen time again in the future? Or was this the show signaling to us like, yeah, enjoy your final scene between these two characters? Uh, I could see that. I'd be okay with that, too. I wouldn't be okay with it. You wouldn't it, be it, okay.
1: You'd be upset. Yeah, I would be a little upset. Let me, let me, uh, let me get you uh, closer to why with a comment from R. Philly. R. Philly said, after rewatching season one last week, I found myself far more invested in Jill. I found it interesting that she's, quote, left the nest, so to speak, as she's been the only constant in Kevin's life through all of his trials.
0: I was being very mature and not taking the bait.
1: (laughs) I really put it out there. How important slash dangerous should we consider that fact? Am I alone in hoping we see more of her this season than we did in season two?
0: Definitely not alone. Uh, And I'm not saying that I don't ever want to see Jill on the show again. I hope that we definitely see Jill on the show again. I think that you could have Jill without Kevin. Uh, But I think even Damon Lindelof is the guy who said right around the end of season two or maybe it was in the build up of season three. But I feel like it was a while ago where he talked about how jill was a character who got short shrifted in the format and the structure of season two where it really did follow characters and their their perspectives and you know really restricted that um on an episode by episode basis and he wished that they had had time that they had room for a jill episode so with that being the philosophy i almost uh would be surprised if we don't get some sort of jill centric episode at some point here in the last half of uh of this show
1: well, there are only seven left. It's going to be tough to serve all these characters. Uh, Bobby Marasa from Jersey was worried that we were going to have an underserved character in Jill this season, and people were wondering about Jill and Michael. Uh, Thomas Altman and Bobby both asked about that. And <laughs> Bobby observed, was it just that they became stepbrother and sister and that was the end of it?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing where like there was that whole moment where Jill and Kevin are talking outside the house and Michael is just on the porch. And as we were saying earlier, like those moments where the show uh, where where they will they will have a scene later on that recontextualizes something you've seen. Like, can't you see like that porch conversation between Michael and Jill happening later on in the show?
1: Definitely. It is odd that we didn't get uh, at least one scene between the two of them. Uh, You can imagine if Michael really is thinking... Uh, that there's something to Kevin. They're writing this book about him. Then everything that happens in Kevin's life is something Michael might assign more value to, spiritual value to even. So he has to look at Jill a little differently. If he's looking at Kevin as some sort of religious figure, then what is Jill? The, the daughter of a religious figure? Is she, a, is she some kind of prophet? Is she connected to this in any way? Would that make her more or less enticing for Michael? It's just something we we talked about, we saw in season two, there was something between the two of them. we don 't see any of that now. If this is the last that Jill sees kevin my my downside would be I just feel like she has been the constant, as our philly points out she kevin's family and all these things that are important to him, whether it 's tommy, whether it 's jill when my when I rewatch season one, the importance of those characters really jumped out. So much of what Kevin is doing in season one is trying to do right by Jill and trying to balance this family life, making meatloaf, Josh, uh, and having these awkward interactions with her friend Amy. But all of it is centered around keeping Jill present in his life. Uh, That helps that Lori is gone, uh, and really Kevin is trying to hang on to Jill, I think, and normalcy. But Kevin is also the same way with Tommy, constantly calling him, worrying about him, all of that. The big ending for season two is Kevin coming back together with all the uh, effed up people, as Jill puts it. And then to have this be just their last season, I understand the poignancy of it or the bittersweetness of it. I just feel like it doesn't really arc out with the character treatment that we've gotten between Kevin and... And Jill over the course of the first two seasons she has been way more important to him and if he moves on from her completely this season doesn't even see her again I just feel like this was not a uh, really kind of a sour ending for what has been the most constant relationship of the entire series
0: yeah I mean I guess stable is it you know like the the most ever present but like not in terms of importance on the show by any stretch of imagination right you know and when when you really have to start paying attention to what's your show's like center point of gravity you know as we're starting to wrap up i don't know that we need more kevin and jill like i can think of several other character combinations with kevin that you need before you need kevin and jill um so I don't I don't I don't feel quite as strongly and I also think thematically like if this is kind of an anticlimactic final scene between Kevin and Jill before events take them apart from each other wouldn't that be consistent with the nature of the departure and how there's so much, you know, open-ended baggage, there's no closure for so many of these relationships? That if there's something like that that occurs, and it doesn't even have to be a departure level event that would cause it, if there's just some reason why Kevin and Jill are going to be separated by distance and will never see each other again, or at least not see each other again on the show, I don't, I don't know. I think that that, I think that works with everything that we've seen on the Leftovers so far.
1: I think there's some some validity to that for sure. I just don't know that that is. A great ending for what I feel like has been the most consistent relationship in the show. I, I feel like that's not, if you're going to stick the landing, stick it. Don't half ass it. Don't make this be this half poignant thing that we'll remember later in the season when we realize it was their last meeting. I rewatched it with the idea that it could be their last meeting. I don't think it plays terribly well. They don't talk about each other really at all. They don't talk about anything that they've ever really dealt with. They only they talk about Nora. Uh, they Really, that's the main thrust of that conversation. That conversation seems to exist so that we can understand that there has been some issue with Lily when Kevin is looking at her and Kevin's talking to Jill about Nora and about Lily and whether he should do something about it. That's the main part of that conversation. That's the reason that scene happens. And I'd hate to think that... In what is ultimately their last meeting, the only real reason for them talking was to talk about Nora and talk about Lily. I think that's a little uh, unfair to Jill. It's a little unfair to what has been the most consistent relationship of the first two seasons. It's also a little unfair in light of what happened with Evie. And that brings us to the next really major thing that people wanted to talk about. Which is what was going on with Megan Evie? Are we going to see more of them? Again, Alex Kuhn said Meg was, su- Meg was such a great villain for the series. Who are the contenders to fill that void left by her? Does the show need such an obvious antagonist like a Meg or Patty? Yaya observed that people are speculating as to whether Evie and Meg are alive. They are dead. No way The Leftovers is going to pull a walking dead dumpster death on its fans. You can't come back from a direct missile strike. I'm sorry. Not in the present time, at least. John Murphy doesn't agree with this, Josh. I'm wondering... Are you okay with a show that doesn't include Meg or Evie? And are we missing the antagonist without Meg in it?
0: See, my, you know, just to tie it back to the Jill thing, like I'm a lot more frustrated if we never get anything from Meg and Evie again than if we never get another Joe and Kevin scene. Like I that's think, fair. Like, no, that's
1: fair. You know, like I uh,
0: just to go back to the Joe thing a little tiny bit is like maybe they're the most steady relationship of the series, but I think that ultimately, just not crazy central to the show and and the stories that are being told. And I, I watched that scene a second time as well as if it's their final scene, and I'm fine with it. He hugs her. He kisses her head. They, you know, let each other know how they feel about each other. Most, most people would be lucky for that to be their last interaction with somebody before they never interact with them again. You know, there's so many unfulfilled, unsatisfying final conversations between people in real life, and I think that that would be cool to reflect that on the show rather than just giving it the the straight Hollywood ending of being able to say to each other exactly how they feel about each other and then never see each other again. Different story if they know for sure that some sort of end is coming. But this far away from a very nebulous potential event, I think it's totally fine. That's neither but, here nor the, there unless you really want to dig into it.
1: But why didn't we get that with Evie? We saw Evie and Erica, and we had a great question from another Alex who, asked, I'm, who said, I'm certain we'll find more about Erica as the season goes on. But what do you think the chances are that she joined the guilty remnant? Evie told her you understand when questioned why she joined the guilty remnant. So it seems possible that Erica's grief after the drone strike drove her to them. I know that Erica and in Evie is not nearly as central a relationship as Kevin and Jill. But you're okay with that's the last we have of Erica and Evie, and you're. But you're not. You're not okay with that. But you're okay with it being the last between Kevin and Jill. It does feel I didn't like say
0: that. You're putting well, words in my mouth, man. I would put, I would potentially be very fine with Erica and Evie not having a scene again, but if there's nothing from Evie period, that Why would do we need me.
1: more of Evie? Why do we need more of her? I mean, I feel like that story's already told.
0: Because I think that that was the thrust of season two, that everything was building to the return of Evie and the guilty remnant coming to Jarden, and for that to literally just be missile-striked off the board uh, within the first 10 minutes of the season premiere, the subsequent episode after that, that really feels like a yada-yada-ing, unless there's something more important there. I don't think that she has to be alive. And I did rewatch that scene hopeful of like, Maybe the missile struck further no. away, and yeah, maybe right. it's a no. cover up. No, I think they got to be dead. They have They're to be dead. dead, unless some sort of like mystical departure thing happened that beamed them to the other side of the galaxy, and that's crazy, and that's not happening. They're dead. Like that blew them up, and Meg's final line in that scene about one of these days the, the tiger's going to bite your face off is a great final line for Meg as an alive person. Uh, like I said on our previous show, I think that as long as we're checking in with them and getting, some more story with them, either through a flashback or through the hotel, like through that world. I'm great with that. But if there is nothing else from Liv Tyler, if there is no more Meg, if there is no more Evie on the show at all, and that's the pure final moment that we get from him on the show, I would be disappointed with
1: that. See, and I wouldn't. Uh, we're we're just of different minds here in that I think maybe perhaps, and I'm not. This is not a criticism. Perhaps because I rewatched all of season one and all of season two, the Kevin and Jill stuff seems more important to me. Not important in terms of the narrative of the show, like the blow-by-blow, what the story will be, where is future Nora. Like the Jill stuff doesn't really weigh in that. But in terms of the constant centering thing in Kevin's life, Jill has always been it. Like, Nora wasn't a a huge part of Kevin's story throughout all of season one, not to the extent that she was in season two. Uh, Jill was, though. And Jill was then continuing to be a major part of the story and on her own in season two. I just find that to be a a very odd final scene. I think it's a little too on the nose, too, like her making that joke and having that. Whereas with Evie, she disappears at the beginning of season one. We don't really know why, but I feel like in the context of season two, we tell the story that those girls were frustrated, that they didn't like that they were in this town where everything was safe and everyone was good. And the reality was, especially in Evie's life, that wasn't the case. Some screwed up stuff had happened in her family with her dad and her mom and her grandpa. And we don't even know the full story there, but messed up things had happened. So it was not okay for her to pretend and sing songs about how God spared Miracle and everything was great in Miracle. And I got the sense that there was a lot of that in her in her story, and that it was done by the end of the season. That we knew ultimately... I mean, I'm not sure what mystery we need to fill in or what answers we need from Evie at this point. It would be frustrating, though, I think, on the Erica level, because we had that huge thing with Erica. And maybe the way to bring her back to the story is with Erica, if we do get this episode about Erica, that occurs somehow after the... We don't know exactly when that airstrike was. We know it was three years after... The events of the of the previous thing, but we don't know in context of Kevin gets shot in the stomach. He goes back to his house. Is the airstrike the next day? Is it a week later? Is it two weeks later? Does Erica interact with Evie at any point before then? I feel like that's the story we could get, uh, and it could be in the context of Erica. As for Alex's question about Erica joining the guilty remnant, well, I
0: think that that also ties into like, does the show need a? a, a does someone need to fill the void of the antagonist spot? Right, right. E- Erica could be great for that.
1: Yeah, we have our two Alex's combining uh, on this uh, because, yeah, I, I Erica could be great for that. And then maybe there is the the Lily story and maybe there is something a little more to it. It doesn't make sense that Nora wouldn't be chasing her down, but there could be some element of that. Uh, so we don't we don't 100 know percent know. And that's the part I don't care about Evie, but I care about Erica. And I would want to see Evie in that context with Erica. As far as Evie and Meg go, if this is it, this is it. What about that airstrike, though, Josh? You said her last line would be a pretty great last line in the context of that. My question for you is, too great? Like, is, was she somehow involved in arranging this airstrike? Was that part of her plan all along?
0: Uh, I mean, it could have been a thing where she like knew what the, what the cost of it was going to be like, this is a one way ticket. And once they start drilling holes into the compound, she's like, yeah, we're probably about like 30 seconds away from nuclear fire. (laughs) I think obviously not nuclear fire, but I, I think that, you know, she could have, she could know what the stakes are. But I don't know. But maybe not
1: have directly called. Yeah,
0: I don't know what she gains from that. You know, if she knows that there's going to be an airstrike, why is she there? Like, why does she have to martyr herself in in the in the you know the pursuit of that? Uh, So I don't know about that. But I I think that she could know certainly like what the very likely outcome of doing what they did. What's that going to be? Probably not going to end very well for us as we park it here in Jarden.
1: The martyring is a key part of it uh, because they have become martyrs. We see these people in the red shirts at the river who aren't really carrying through the message of the guilty remnant, but are remembering them and saying that, you, you know, the, you these people were killed, you have to remember them. Do we think the guilty remnant, we know the guilty remnant wasn't just Meg, that it was all over the country. We, we established that from previous seasons. So maybe this served the larger mission of the guilty remnant by showing the government attacking them and Meg, maybe Megan took the fall for that and was willing to die for the cause like Gladys was before her, right. knowing full well that this would serve the greater purpose of the guilty remnant. I don't think we have Except a sense she did, of— Except
0: she kind of hates the guilty remnant, right? Or at least she hates like, the leadership of the guilty remnant, and that's why she kind of militarized things. She right. stepped out of line. So I don't right. know, you know, does she want to get the guilty remnant back on track or did she just want to make a violent personal point?
1: But does the step that she took end, end in a path that leads to this very destination? Was this ultimately her goal all along? And was that perhaps why she was at odds with the leadership of the guilty remnant? They didn't want to get this intense. Remember... Meg is the one going on to buses with kids and opening up thankfully not live grenades and causing panic and that alone is too much of a cross or too much of a step uh, to, to do according to the leadership that we see her meeting with of the guilty remnant so maybe she wanted to just step it up and say I want to incite violence I want to incite these horrible things you don't want to do this the way I want to do it and maybe they shirked in the light of what happened at, in Mapleton at the end of season one I'm not sure we just don't really have a sense of where the guilty remnant are at this point if alive at all i don't think those people in the red shirts are guilty remnant they're talking i think they seem more like hippies or activists who are protesting the fact that they were killed and i think that's the the element of that what about josh some people have asked Kristen schmidt asked this for example do you think kevin called in the airstrike on the welcome center he had an opportunity in season one to do this uh, and he didn't because of Lori and jill most likely but what about now did he do it now
0: well, the guy who would have been calling that airstrike in is also the guy who had just come back to life after being poisoned and then died again and then came back to life from getting shot in the chest or some you know version of those events <laughs> and then shows up at his home and is very, very weepy when he sees that his entire family is together and he gets that final line from Nora that says, you're home. And then we're supposed to assume that that guy's first like course of action is to call in a military airstrike? I don't know. I just don't know how that flows well.
1: Right, because we don't know the timing of when the airstrike happened. It could right. have happened the next day. It could have happened. could have
0: been the... days later. Like It could yeah. have been the guilty remnant was holed up in the welcome center for a week for all we know.
1: 100%. Or more. I mean, honestly, or more. Because one of the thing, one of the things that were present there... Is there were a whole lot of government vehicles that pulled away before the airstrike happened? We saw these people jumping into the SUVs and driving away very fast right before it happened. Those people, to my knowledge, weren't in Miracle before, so theoretically they came there after the events of the end of season two and tried maybe to, have been you know, there.
0: hostage negotiate essentially.
1: Right, right, and when that doesn't go well or when they're not able to do what they need to do, that's when they call the airstrike. Send
0: in the drones.
1: <laughs> don't bother they're here yes uh that could easily have happened so i think the question we have to ask ourselves is when did that happen if it happened later was kevin involved possibly i don't see it i think it's way more likely that it's what you said they showed up hostage negotiation whatever you want to call it they realized this was not going to end well and they just wiped him off the map that, like they were willing to do like they were willing to do in season one and like once they had control of a situation where one of their national parks had ultimately the bridge had been exploded and there was a breach, they exacted some revenge and took out the agitators. And I think most likely that's, that's what happened. It's not a Kevin thing.
0: Yeah, I don't think so. Does, does Kevin have the authority to call in an airstrike? Like, I don't know. I, like, I don't feel like
1: that would really play. It's a fair question. He had the authority in season one, seemingly. We talked at the time, uh, but he's not—he's
0: not even a you know an employee of the police department here in Jarden at this point.
1: No, he's not. And Nora probably, as a government uh, agent or employee or whatever you want to call it, if she's—if she could still even have any sort of dsd kind of thing does probably not have the authority either so they're most likely it's not a kevin thing uh it's most likely that they showed up like we said to negotiate to see what they could do there was a breach or an impasse maybe this is what meg wanted all along and then it happened so I think we are on the same page that it happened. We're on the same page that we could see it again uh, or some other version of this with Erica in that it probably didn't happen 12 hours after the events of the end of Season 2. So there's an opportunity for some time to have passed in there where Erica would have been trying to talk to Evie and maybe would have been speaking to her on some level. It is interesting that we transition from the fervor in... The Millerism flashback at the or 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 cold open to the guilty remnant laying there in in the place uh, as though. There is some literal connection or some theoretical connection or figurative connection. There is a connection between the people in white laying down in, in a church that we see than the guilty remnant laying in the welcome center in the same way. Uh, and I don't know if you want to read that as persecution or people in their beliefs being willing to do whatever it takes, uh, but that is happening. And there is a through line there of, of this throughout the, the narrative of this show now, where the guilty remnant are, are willing to go to great lengths because of their faith. And that their faith or their beliefs cause them to do messed up stuff that alienates them from... Their families, it alienates them from society and it ultimately causes harm to them. And I think we've seen that theme throughout the first two seasons of the show. We see it in the flashback here. So it makes sense that we would end with a fiery boom here uh, with the guilty remnant, uh, at least this version of them at the beginning of this season right after that. It it is in thematic uh, contention with uh, or thematic consistency with everything that we've seen. But you mentioned, Josh, something that. We might see Evie again, and this brings us into discussion about Kevin in general. Justin Curry says, in the scene where Kevin tapes the plastic bag around his neck, do you guys think that he actually died and then went to the hotel off screen? Or do you guys think that he's just playing with the idea of going back to the hotel for some reason? And if he ever goes back to the hotel this season, do you think he'll come across Meg, Evie, and the BBA since they're all dead at this point? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I
0: think certainly you got to imagine that he's at least trying to go back to the hotel. Like, why else is he doing this? Unless it's just a kink. And if it's just a kink, it's out of nowhere. Not that he wasn't kind of a kinky guy to begin with, but this is like a new kink. (laughs) So so I I don't think that it's just for funsies. I think that... I think that Kevin is trying to go back to the hotel. I'm not sure that he is successfully going back to the hotel. I mean, it would be really neat if all of this time later, you know, over the past three years, just like on a near daily basis, he has been going back and being like, what up, Virgil? And, you know, just like going and like hanging out at the hotel, doing karaoke, doing his thing, trying on a different suit every time. Um, but, I, but I imagine that this is a guy who desperately would like to go back who would desperately like to get back to that hotel. We have to go back to the hotel and would be willing to go to extreme lengths to make that happen, to see, it. was I crazy? Uh, so I don't know that he's actually succeeding in the mission, but I bet that he's at the very least attempting. Like, this isn't just a weird thing he's doing. That dude's trying to go back to the other side.
1: Yeah, when we when we talked about this in our recap, we we called it chasing death. And I do think that... It's impossible for events like that to have happened to someone like Kevin and for Kevin not to think about them. We see him thinking about them throughout the course of the first episode. When he's baptized, he thinks about his uh, butt emerging from the bathtub. When he is <laughs> when he is in other positions, he's thinking about those events. He even tells Tommy uh, that he, in the course of a job killed people and just did what he was supposed to and he's remembering International Assassin as though it happened. Right. He's treating this as a real thing. So it stands to reason a guy like that would really be wanting to try to figure out like what happened there? How did I get back to that? It does seem like a ritual he may also be testing whether he can be killed. We have established that maybe he can't be killed. Like We don't know what the rules of this thing are. Matt seems to think that maybe he can be killed but not in Jarden uh, which would bode very poorly if Kevin left uh, Jarden by the way and went to australia then we have to wonder if kevin can now be killed but by the rules of this we don't really know what the rules are and it could be kevin just testing that testing right. the rules of it can i still just reemerge from this we don't know so that seems to be more likely to me uh, bert was asking about the same thing i don't know i like your your new kink theory <laughs>
0: <laughs> i know kinky kevin
1: yeah, I like that. I like that. I like the Kiki Kevin. It could be uh, we uh, as you said, he's this is a guy who used to handcuff himself to a bed. So uh, it's not something completely out of the realm of possibility. But, but most we, likely, but,
0: but we have seen uh, people with bags on their heads in the hotel universe.
1: Tell me more, Josh.
0: Well, you tell me more because you texted me earlier today with a screenshot uh, that comes directly from international assassin.
1: Yeah, I went back and watched International Assassin in light of all these questions and just in between a repeated
0: viewings of uh, Scream Queen season one.
1: Not true. Not true. Not anymore. Uh, I'm on to season two now. Come on. Okay. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, the uh, I went back and watched International Assassin actually this morning, and uh, yeah, there there is a scene where Kevin is walking through the bowels of the hotel uh, on his way to meet Senator Levin. And he sees another what looks to be Mapleton police officer crossing through and that Mapleton police officer is being led by a guilty remnant person and has a black bag over their head. And we speculated about this at the time when we watched International Assassin and in the aftermath. Was this Kevin? Uh, Was this Kevin in another perhaps story or he had chosen another path or was this some sort of eternal loop? And you do have to wonder if Mapleton or not. I think that was a Mapleton police uniform. But if Kevin in police uniform with bag overhead is connected to Kevin with bag overhead as he is putting on police uniform in current story. And we just don't know. It's, it's, it would be great if they were tipping off a lot in season two that will be worth rewatching. It, it was certainly worth keeping an eye on, I think.
0: It'd be fun. That'd be really fun. Yeah. Um, I mean, whether or not he is successfully going back or going back with eyes wide open, um, there's no question that we return to the hotel universe. It's really just a matter of time. I cannot wait to get back there.
1: You love that hotel.
0: I love that hotel. It looked like a great place to stay. Uh, No, International (laughs) Assassin just remains one of the great episodes of anything I've ever seen. Uh, And I love that world so much. And when we went back there in the season two finale, I was so surprised that we went back and clearly it's a spot on the show now. Like this is a this is an inflection point within the universe of the leftovers. And there's just no way we don't go back there. And clearly Kevin is trying to go back there and we're going to get to see that place again too.
1: Our friend Rob Sister Nino, he famously remarked as we were wrapping up the thir- the second season of the leftovers that if another character goes to the hotel, it will be a shark jumping moment for The Leftovers. Do you I think we're still at that? Are, no. are we still there? You disagree.
0: I disagree. I think, I think that that could be fine. You know, it, it's really all a matter of like, especially like if, if this book of Kevin thing really takes off and we start to get into the territory of Kevin buying into it. And Kevin is somebody who is, you know, part of the, you know, is at least... Uh, on I don't know is at least exposed to to this new this new development that is surrounding Kevin and all of the things that he has done uh, like if he takes people to the other side like if he brings Nora there or if he brings Erica there like if he sees Evie there uh, and it's like hey John and Erica, I take you to your daughter like if he can start pulling that stuff together that would be pretty incredible to see and I think that that could be terrific television
1: yeah as far as we know no one in that hotel departed they're not one of those people but if for whatever reason that becomes a thing my god like kevin wanting to take nora there will be a major major problem and nora's desire to see her family again may trump her desire to be alive in this universe and that will be something that will be very difficult i think for kevin does he tell her about that uh i don't know it will be great to see if we go back there exactly how that plays out i just don't know if Meg will be there, if Evie will be there, it seemed to be an in-between kind of place, uh, and we—it almost felt like Kevin freed Patty's soul a little bit by getting down there and helping her escape, and that was—that was what got her away. But that he really did provide her salvation, and so it fits right into the book of Kevin narrative. We'll talk about that more before the end of this podcast, but. Something that I think would be a jump the shark moment, Josh, uh, or maybe called a, a, a dog jumping moment. Uh, <laughs> jump the dog. Can we talk about this? We have to talk about it, even though I really desperately do not want to. Why don't you carry the ball?
0: Antonio on is so triggered by the dog apocalypse. That's
1: right. I am. You are
0: You are upset about even just the notion of the dog I am. apocalypse. I
1: think it's Lindelofing to the highest degree. Uh-huh. This <laughs> the is fact like that the... it's
0: even on the show as a... As yes. like, as a, at all, like period, that that the dog Pocalypse has even been mentioned on the show, you think is is too far of a Lindelofing?
1: No, I think it was mentioned for as a joke, and I think it was funny. I laughed a lot at it, and, and people are taking it seriously, and I feel like that is like post-doctorate level Lindelofing. (laughs) Like that is unbelievable levels of Lindelofing that we're looking down seven more episodes of The Leftovers to go and people are actually thinking that the way this series ends, which has always been about the quest for meaning and the things that we create in the void and the things we look to, that they think this series is going to end with a science fiction story that dogs are inhabiting people's bodies and are taking over the world and it's really going to be about these dogs.
0: I can't wait for that to be the final episode of The Leftovers. Like, just the dog people that are running around, and Sarah Durst is where she is because she can't, like, if, if she's just got to be away from the dogs, man. She had to change her name. Like, she was a hero in the first wave of Dog Wars, and if they know that she's Nora Durst, she's immediately going to be sent to the pound. <sighs> No, oh, no good. No,
1: no, you wouldn't watch oh. that
0: episode. You wouldn't be all right with that.
1: In the words of post-show recaps, Rich Tackenberg. Oh, boy. I think like, it'd be good. No, it would not. As you pointed <laughs> out, dogs do love leftovers.
0: They love leftovers.
1: Dogs do love leftovers. But, you, I,
0: but the leftovers fans don't necessarily love dogs. And this is also possibly a part of it, as I know you're not a big dog guy.
1: No, that is true. I'm negative dogs. But do you want to do you want to read any of these dog comments that we have on these dog theories? We had several people commenting on them.
0: Well, it just seems like a few people are maybe a little bit more in on the dog than we are. Laura Maria Olson, for instance. Dogpocalypse <laughs> is real. You heard it here first. Ask any parent or in my case, grandparent of a three year old who's been newly introduced to paw patrol and has seen dogs blowing up things and all kinds of crazy tech. I'm telling you these dogs can do a lot more than you think. <laughs> Be worried. Be very worried.
1: Oh, Lord. First all, I think Laura's joking. Yeah, I think uh, she's joking. She's tri- trying to trigger me here. Maybe
0: a little more seriously. A little more seriously from Geek Furious wrote in uh, on the comments section and said, I think you guys are making the same mistake with the dogs that you made during Fargo season two with the alien thing. You're dismissing it because you don't want to believe there is something to it. But the dog goes crazy when it finds the bagged peanut butter sandwich after the shooting. And Kevin is definitely noting it. This has to be important, even if it isn't true. And the show is a lot about what people believe. Mattering as much as what is true. I can take that on seriously if you want for a second. Uh, that that moment where where Kevin does watch the dog take the sandwich away from Dean's dead body, and like what's the significance of that? I think it could really just be, you know, Kevin is probably still contemplating his own sanity. Like when he talks to Lori earlier in the episode, he's like, but I got better. And Lori's like, Of course he did. But the I got better. Is the kind of line that somebody who 's not sure if they got better would say one hundred percent and if he 's still you know trying to get himself to the hotel and especially if it 's unsuccessful and this is like his daily ritual, then this is a guy who probably privately still thinks that he 's a little bit nuts, like just because he 's not seeing the ghost of patty anymore doesn 't mean maybe there 's something off with me right. The impression that I get from when he 's seeing that moment with the dog is probably still like that fleeting suggestion of. What if I am a little nuts? Like what? You know, what if this isn't all right? And certainly, uh, I think that it could. You know, this is a guy who should feel pretty shameful about how he was acting in Mapleton when we first met him and was shooting dogs with Dean. And I think that he could look at these dogs and Dean's final fate as a reminder of where he could have gone and frankly where perhaps he could still be going to go that far to the brink. That's really the only serious note that I got from that scene with the dogs. I don't think that we're supposed to take the dog apocalypse seriously. I think it is it is strongly, strongly uh, stated on the show without words but with a music cue that we're not supposed to take right. this seriously because of that scene with Dean and Kevin when Dean is telling him about the senator and going through the specifics of all of that and the music is dramatic and then as soon as he talks about canine dna mixing with human dna the music's gone it suddenly departs and you're just left with kevin watching a clearly insane person ramble about his insanity so i think that we're not supposed to take the dog thing seriously except for how it relates to kevin emotionally how it reflects some of his past actions uh, but certainly not because there's some sort of dog conspiracy as much as i think it'd be funny especially because he would just bother the hell out of you
1: yeah, that's what we really want about our final season of The <laughs> Leftovers, It's Just one big call, cosmic joke. That's what we've been You know me. For.
0: I love the circus. I'm a fan of the circus, so bring some dogs. <laughs> I did dogs. not know that about you,
1: actually. You <laughs> you know, know, I'm,
0: so, a, I'm, I'm a fan of the train wreck. I don't mind. You know, yeah, At least true. it's always interesting to pick apart. My preference would be a flawless final season of The Leftovers, but if it goes off the rails, I'll be here for that, too.
1: I mean, that's what this is. It, listen, in the, in the version of the story you're telling, totally conceivable that Nicolas Cage turns up in episode four <laughs> or five, and I know that that would please the <laughs> yes. hell out of you, so I get well, it.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, like, they are expecting Gary Busey to return, but it's just Nicolas Cage who shows up. <laughs>
1: Doing a Gary Busey impression and ending up <laughs> sounding like Nicolas Cage.
0: It's Nicolas Cage as Gary Busey.
1: Yeah, like a face-off situation. Yes. I love it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think you're right. I think what Geek Fear... I, you, first of all, you you stated all that really wonderfully. Like, it's uh, that's exactly how I feel. It isn't so much... That it is meant to be taken seriously because i don 't think it is. I think the music cue is the key for that. I think the fact that we know the b b a is a complete wacko is is a, is a clue for that but I think it's more about what Kevin thinks. And this show has always been about the way people react to these things. Remember, in Lens, Nora is super worried that she is a Lens. She's, she's worried about the science of it. She's worried about all of these things. Is there some explanation for why her family departed that has to do with her? Then she gets a phone call from somebody who's been trying to reach her throughout the episode, in person and otherwise. And she's been hostile to their attempts. She starts taking it a little more seriously. And then they say, oh, because we believe the demon Ezreal has entered your body. And there are people who are looking at Nora scratching her back in the images from this season with wings emerging from Nora and Kevin and saying, there's a demon. The demon's coming. And I put that theory on the level of the dogpocalypse I understand if you want to read those things into it I think the show is encouraging us to Lindelof because that's what the characters on the show are doing they're looking for meaning in with all of these various signs and trying to draw connections where maybe there aren't connections and they're doing that in response to this thing that's been presented to them in the form of the departure The show is presenting the same thing to us, the departure, and asking us to do the same things, assign meaning to the things that we see in the show, some of which are dogs carrying away a sandwich, some of which are people saying there's a demon hiding in your body, and I think that ultimately this is more about how Kevin responds. He doesn't respond strictly like Nora, where she bursts into laughter when she hears about the demon. He sort of laughs Dean off a little bit and says, I'll come with you tomorrow and visit you. But then when Dean is dead and he sees the dog dragging the sandwich away, he's not laughing anymore. So I think that is more along the lines of Kevin is still very much searching for meaning, very much searching and not sure, as you put it, what his mental status is. And I think that's the much bigger takeaway from all these dog things. Totally. There is is one angle we haven't talked about, and we can wrap this dog convo with this. Daniel said that he would like us to discuss Kevin Sr.'s love of peanut butter from Season 1. Remember, uh, Ke- Kevin Jr. was always bringing it to him in the institution. The money right. from Matt was buried in a gift jar. How does Dean's belief that the dogs have taken human form uh, in hell are hell bent on destroying the world? What are the links between that and Kevin Senior's peanut butter, if anything? Well, are there any? Is there a peanut butter conspiracy here? Also, I might add, <laughs> the Paul F. Tompkins character on BoJack Horseman is named Mister Peanut Butter, and he's a human. He's a dog that speaks. So, there's a lot of peanut butter connections here. Josh, is there a peanut butter conspiracy?
0: The peanut butter conspiracy. I mean. Look, if any of these human characters are secretly dog people, I feel like Kevin Sr. isn't a bad bet. Like, he, There's just something shaggy about that guy.
1: <laughs> what kind of dog would he be? A
0: little unpredictable. Uh, I don't know.
1: Like a uh, sharp hay? I don't know. No, what would he be? Yeah, I'm not sure. Some kind of sheepdog?
0: Yeah, some sort of sheepdog sounds about right.
1: Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure.
0: I'm not sure, but I, I feel like what would the connection to that be? Uh, Kevin Sr. might want to watch the world burn. We don't know enough about that guy. He might be a guy who's like, yeah, I think we're about to go and we should get that moving. You know, like I, I could see something like that or somebody who has a front row seat to, to watching the world burn. And if that's what we're connecting, you know, if we're connecting peanut butter's you know, peanut butter to the to the dog apocalypse, and there's some sort of dog conspiracy of people who want to bring us closer to the end, if you want to link that peanut butter back to Kevin Sr. who is, you know, quietly rooting for or actively working towards some sort of longer, you know, wider end game, I guess you could do that. Or it could just be that peanut butter is delicious, and dogs and humans both love peanut butter. Unless yeah, natural peanut butter. Yeah. That's
1: true. I I just it's it's just one of those things that's there. It's it's constant throughout the seas, the series, this peanut butter stuff. And I just think it's everybody's
0: nothing. in a sticky situation, Antonio. <laughs> That's what true. This is.
1: That's more like honey in your hair, though. Uh, or if like when you sit in gum uh, or the Dairy Queen's melting. But yeah, if you if you if you want a front row seat to the apocalypse, uh, you get your popcorn ready. Josh, you don't get your peanut butter ready. No one says get your peanut butter ready. So I, I don't know. I Kevin Sr. did love peanut butter, though. That is a note. So it's fun to bring these season one things back into the story in season three. I will say one of my biggest concerns when I watched the the seasons again is that because of what happens with Patty in season two? When Kevin goes full nutty, Kevin, right? Then the stuff in season one you doesn't sure that's matter. not smooth, Kevin. <laughs> oh boy, I'm getting I'm getting triggered. One step at a time here. One step at a time. I'm gonna I'm gonna break a pen in my hand. That'll be the first thing, and then we'll, well who knows what will happen next. Just
0: doing my job.
1: But but yeah, this is a this is a thing where stuff from season one uh, is coming together here. When he goes full nutty, Kevin with Patty. Then it doesn't it's like, oh, well, was he hearing voices? Was he seeing deer in season one? Who cares? He's now seeing a corporeal uh, manifestation that is speaking to him. Uh, And so all that other stuff about whatever, whether he was nuts in season one or not, uh, whether he was smooth or chunky, it doesn't really matter because here we are where he is clearly nuts. So I was concerned that a lot of this stuff from season one wouldn't matter. I really liked them bringing Dean back to show how the stakes have changed. Dean himself, before he's, before, before he's shot, says to Kevin, you've changed. And we have this character who was full of madness that dragged Kevin away, as we talked about in our recap in season one. Dean and Kevin were really getting into some scrapes there. In this season Kevin's laughing that guy off like literally looking him in the face and be like oh I'm sorry you're clearly crazy like we're going to fix this. Uh, so Kevin has changed and that is a thing, but I love that he looks at that sandwich and you wonder maybe maybe if he's if he's sure he's changed. So I like the way they're bringing season 1 back in. I like how they're bringing season one back in with Tommy. And this was a great observation, I thought, from Laura Maria Olsen about Tommy. Laura said, I don't remember how much you touched on Tommy and the fact that the boy was searching for a Messiah for two seasons and now is with one, possibly his own father. And I don't even think he knows it. Do you? Why haven't the apostles tried to get him in on it? Wonder how that will be when he finds out. So what do you think about Tommy Garvey? Is he a doubting Thomas, Josh? Are you familiar with your apostle stories?
0: No, I can't say that I am. The only apostle stories I know are from News AF.
1: Ah, (laughs) I know what you're talking about. Uh, Yeah, this is a doubting Thomas is uh, just kind of a skeptic. And it comes from one of the apostles, Thomas, who didn't believe that the resurrected Jesus had appeared he didn't see it he's like from Missouri he's saying show me and he hadn't seen Jesus so he's like I, until I see it I, I don't think it happened and he was known as doubting Thomas as a result of all this Tommy as Laura rightly observes is a guy who was so taken in by Holy Wayne and he was looking for a search for meaning that he was he was taken in by Holy Wayne in season one then the same thing happened with him in the guilty remnant in season two what do we think we're going to see out of Tommy in terms of his role with Kevin in this season
0: I think I think if he finds out what's going on and if he hears the stories and certainly if he sees something firsthand, but I don't even know if that he would need that. I think Tommy is like totally the guy who is primed and ready to fall in line with this. Don't you? Like, I feel like Tommy, uh, for the reasons that were just outlined, he's a guy who's been looking for meaning in this world for so long and has followed some pretty extreme people to that end from Holy Wayne to Meg. Uh, so I think that like if he finally got some proof and also in this episode, they make it clear how much Kevin meant to Tommy the first time they met. Like the smiling cop who came along at a time when Tommy is very, very, very young and immediately took a shine to Kevin. Uh, I I think that if Kevin, if Tommy finds out what's going on with Kevin, with like what Matt and John and Michael are planning with Kevin, I think the moment he hears about that, I got to imagine he's pretty psyched about it.
1: Yeah. Until then, though, he's just monitoring like uh, he's get his car is getting shot up and he's in the middle of the street just shooting people in the head like this is a guy who if he's apostolic, he's on a rough road because he's murdered multiple people now granted, quote unquote, in the line of various duties. But this is a, this is not an easy guy. So he might fold right into the flock, if you will, uh, because he's been a, a, an easy follower throughout. I think it might be personally difficult for him because he knows Kevin as Kevin. I don't think he thinks of Kevin as this spiritual figure, even though there is that great origin story about two-year-old Tommy in the back of the car uh, right after the car accident. These, these, these messed-up cars really seem to follow Tommy around. Uh, but I don't know, ultimately... If he would reject that because he knows Kevin very well and doesn't see that in him and has never seen that in him, or if he'd be so quick to embrace it because he's always searched for meaning. And, of course, it was right in front of his face the whole time. I actually think they've managed to make Tommy Garvey, Josh, somewhat interesting. Somewhat interesting, somewhat interesting. somewhat yeah. interesting.
0: But I, I did say on Sunday night, and I'll hold to it, is that if all the main characters, Tommy's the one I'm least, least interested in by far.
1: Oh, no, let me say this. If that scene between Tommy and Kevin, where they're talking about international assassin and murders, if that was the last scene we got between Tommy and Kevin, I'm fine with that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not there. Like, I need some closure. I'll need resolution with Tommy. But, like, that resolution can come in a few forms that aren't necessarily beneficial to that character, and I'd be all right.
1: I'm fine. I I, I I get it. I get it. We'll see what happens ultimately with Tommy Garvey right now. Josh, I think like uh, like someone else we could talk about right now. He knows a little bit about problems with car accidents or just cars in general,
0: just cars in general. Well, it's good, a good thing you brought that up, Antonio. This episode of The Leftovers podcast, we're sponsored. How about this? Oh, my God. I think this is the first uh, ad read, certainly, that I've ever done. But we're sponsored by True Car for this podcast. How about Antonio. that? How about that? If you guys don't know what True Car is, True Car is is a way to help you buy a used car. Uh, in fact, there are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from True Car Certified Dealers nationwide. Are you looking for a new car or a used car, Antonio? Uh,
1: yeah, because some crazy bald man just shot mine just up. Just
0: shot your car right up in the middle of Melbourne, Kentucky. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Looking for pizza. Uh, he said he was looking for dogs But yeah, okay <laughs> Dog pizza yeah. Whether you're looking to buy new or used You can get upfront pricing information That empowers Discounts off the list price for used car And a better buying experience Through our True Car Certified Dealer Network There are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles Available from True Car Certified Dealers nationwide You'll see what other people paid for the car you want So you can know what a fair price is And feel confident With True Car You can connect with a local certified dealer If you choosing. So you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. And with using True Car, you can easily find the new or used car that you want. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states, Antonio, including upstate New York, one assumes.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, but maybe not. Uh, I don't no want to
0: rule that out for upstate New York. I'm sure it works. Uh, I'm sure True Car is good.
1: The True Car experience sounds a lot better than showing up at a car lot and they have a giant inflatable Gary Busey meant to bring <laughs> people to the lot. Yeah. Are you
0: kidding me? I would buy a car from that place in a minute. Yeah, the Busey mobile.
1: Well, yeah, uh, True Car maybe gives you more information. So that's what we're looking for out of this uh, out of this whole experience in this podcast. and. Josh, I think there's one real big thing that we should talk about here and it's we're really going to get into the theories of Kevin uh and the book of Kevin here and what that might look at uh look like for the season going forward and with evidence from previous seasons. Um uh, this may not be a thing that everyone wants to listen to because some people don't like to get into these heavy theories which may start to circle around the truth. Uh we had a lot of feedback from our Mr. Robot podcast about this uh when we when we were sniffing out twists or stories. Well, in advance. So just beware. We're going to get into some heavy theory speculation about where we think uh, some of this evidence may be pointing for the rest of this season. So if you're not interested in in that, uh, check out. But if not, Josh, let's lean into Kevinism.
0: All right. Let's lean into Kevinism. And this is something that you floated my way earlier this morning. And I love where your head is at with this. But it is like one of those theories that sounds so great that like it's it, it feels like it's the thing. So, so, so who knows? I mean, maybe we're wildly, wildly off on this one, but I love where your head is at with this. So I would love to get what you believe Kevinism to be and where we seem to be driving towards through this idea.
1: And I should add, uh, I didn't. I, I'm. I'm. What really sp- spurred me, kind of thinking about it, were the comments from the, the the listeners. So that was very helpful in guiding a lot of what we'll talk about in the next section here as we close out this podcast. Uh, the first two I really want to get into that that set this up as an overarching Kevinism discussion is first from Alex Coons. Alex Coons said, "I feel like the central question of the first two seasons was." What do people do when faced with unexplainable loss? The conflict was always love, family, compassion versus grief, anarchy, and unexplainability. In this premiere, I feel like there was almost no reference to these themes. Instead, it seems to me like the central question is now, what do real people do when they are unexplainably a religious figurehead? (laughs) While the show has always been very religious, it seems like a shift to me. Do you agree that the show is more religious than it has been before? If so, how do you feel about the show shifting its focus away from loss and grief? Hmm. First of all, Josh, do you grant that premise that we seem to be in a more religious place at the beginning of this season?
0: Well, I mean, we're in a very religious place at the beginning of this season, but to say more religious than we've been in the past, I think religion has been super important throughout this entire show. Uh, certainly from the very, uh, the very first season, episode three, Matt's whole misadventure, everything involving Matt has been very biblical in nature. Uh, Uh, And I think that, you know, the you know, many of the premises involved in The Leftovers, uh, you have organizations that are popping up in response to this inexplicable event in order to start to understand what is going on or to ascribe some meaning or maybe to celebrate and champion the meaninglessness, as is the case with The Guilty Remnant. So, no, I think that this is just sort of the natural place that we've been building towards.
1: I agree. Uh, And I totally agree with Alex that I think one of the central components of the show has always been what do people do when faced with unexplainable loss? That, I think, has been the the thing that we've teased at the edges of, or that's the general element of everything from the first episode of this show all the way to the 10th. Uh, It has been both on a micro and macro level both on the world's level in, in terms of the cottage industries being built up around the departure, in terms of new government departments, in terms of how different nations responded or things that happened, and then on the level of the, the individual, the families, the Kevin Garvey's the Lorries, the Nora Durst the Matt's, uh, all of these people and the Murphy's, including last season we saw a whole season set in a town where departure hadn't happened and how did that make the residents of that town feel, and we had that great, incredible church blow up from erica not the, the blow up that happened in this season uh but we had that incredible moment where she says we are not spared like this happened like the bad things happen in miracle there are no miracles in miracle and we saw all the crazy ways that this town was responding to this thing the the show has always been about that search for answers And in that way, the show is just about life. I'm sure I droned on about this in my intro to the season, uh, because that has always been the theme to me. Uh, When we cast this back to prehistoric times, and we show people, and we're we're, we're showing these quests for meaning throughout history, and we're highlighting this, and we're talking about Axis Mundi and Reza Aslan, advising about the religious uh, elements of how these things popped up throughout history. It would naturally flow that a cataclysmic event like this in the world would create this sort of thing, that people would respond in the ways that we have historically, that we would look to the skies for answers, that we would look at things that happened in the aftermath and assigned them some sort of cosmic meaning, Um, whether it was a specific time period, whether it was a specific person or incident. This is how we as a species have always responded to the unexplained. And I think this show has always been about that. So as we transition into this final season, I think there is the religious element of that perhaps more so specifically with religion than we have seen in the previous seasons, even though religion has been a part of it. The religious element in season one, and it's a stark contrast to season three, mind you, in season one, Matt Jameson cannot get anyone to come to his church in the episode in episode three, the two boats and the helicopter. That's the story about how no one is coming to his church. He's desperate to get money to save it. And the guilty remnant buys it. But he has no one in his church services because this horrible thing happened. People can't explain it. They've gone away from religion because religion doesn't really exist. Explain it. And perhaps in part because of Matt. And then, as we see in this season, his church is literally overflowing, Josh. Religion is back in the forefront of people's minds. We're seven years out. We see all the religious iconography or symbolism from all these books that Matt is mentioning. Seven years, seven years, seven years. He's named his kid Noah. His wife's name is Mary. We have all these apostolic names. Our episode is called The Book of Kevin. This is very much about religion and perhaps a specific new sect of a religion forming around Kevo, Josh, the new savior Kevo. Oh my gosh. Whether we call this Kevinism or not, there is this thing that is, that is, this is the show is putting this on display. It is about Matt writing a religious text about Kevin. That's what this first episode is about. And it is very much about Kevin looking at the peanut butter sandwich of it and saying, do I believe this or not? Am I crazy? Would I be crazy to believe it? And Kevin choking himself and putting himself in this position where he's searching for the truth that he maybe found some element of in the previous season, so Kevin is definitely on his own little path here, and he doesn't burn the book. he wants to burn it. his reaction is, "I don't like this," but he he's a little do
0: distracted it. by what's going on in the sky.
1: He is a little distracted by what's going on in the sky, and maybe you, you can assign some meaning to that if you want. remember he tried to kill himself, Josh, and the earth literally opened to prevent that. So, look, we can say Kevin is not has no spiritual symbolism whatsoever or there's nothing connected to that, but there's a lot of evidence that says you can see where if, let's say in, I don't know, let's flash forward, uh, maybe like, I don't know, 30 years from now to the point where Nora Durst would look like she does in this final scene.
0: Do you think that's 30 years?
1: What do you think it is, 10 years? I don't know. How old's Carrie Coon? I think that that's probably 25 to 30 years at least.
0: Caricoon is thirty six. That looks like someone who's like in their like they're like stressed out, you know, fifties potentially.
1: Mm, I'm not buying it. I think no. that that's. Uh, I think we're talking thirty years. Maybe okay. maybe not. Maybe not. I think at most thirty years. I don't think more than that. I think at least maybe twenty years, but twenty to thirty years later. But you could see that within the context of twenty to thirty years in the life of Kevo, that it could start. That this could build. That this could be something that. Look, it, it might not happen in six months, but. When you look at the way religions develop, they develop in these ways that we look back. I mean, nobody talked about Christ the Savior, the historical Jesus. We didn't we don't really hear about that actually until oh almost a hundred years after the events of historical Jesus' life. And we hear about it in, a, in an offhanded way, and the the only historian that writes about it at the time is writing that he said he was the Messiah and all these things happened. But we don't know about these things, and I will tell you that time makes these stories different, right? Like time can add huge elements to these stories, stories that start out very simple, like, oh, there was a, there was a woman, and I, I shouldn't say simple, but let's say the story of Mary and Matt. A woman who was comatose uh, moved to this town, gave birth somehow magically, and then was fine after that in 60 years after that happens what's what are the versions of it what's the details of that story going to sound like in right. 300 years after that happened what are the details of that story going to sound like eventually the very specific things that matter when we're analyzing whether it's real or spiritual they go out the window and we just we just have the 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 apocryphal version or the story version uh, not necessarily the truth and i think that that's the way with all religions and it's certainly we could see that being the way with Kevin. There are so many things, Josh, that happen in the life of Kevin that we could assign this value to if we wanted to.
0: Yeah. No, I think that that's true. Uh, and I could imagine like Kevin being an incredibly reluctant figurehead for this movement. Yeah, and I could also imagine Kevin being convinced of like Kevin eventually being like, Yeah, you know what? I have died a couple of times, and I've come back after visiting this weird hotel universe where people seem to be dead and I can communicate with them. Like, you can imagine that guy eventually buying his own hype.
1: I can imagine any of us, if that happened to us, buying into that a little bit, right? And that's without hype men running around behind us being like, oh, divine intervention, divine intervention. You got baptized. Spiritualism, spiritualism shouting at us that we're the savior. Men, by the way, who have apostolic names. So we have Matt... Uh, we, we have John, uh, we have Thomas, uh, we have all these names of people that are either gospel writers or apostles. Uh, we have Michael, we have all these biblical names in play. Uh, so it's it's interesting. Uh, look, John, who is There Are No Miracles in Miracle, he knows about it and he seems to kind of be on board. He says, I shot you in the chest and you didn't die. Like you didn't even go get medical attention. You just crawled your, sewed yourself up and went home. Like, This is uh, even John Murphy, even there are no miracles in Miracle John Murphy, even a guy who is shredding money. uh, And we'll talk about that. Uh, we, We didn't hit that, but we should talk about that momentarily. But all of that. He still believes Uh, Matt, obviously instantly on board that guy assigns meaning to just about anything. So I'm not sure it's most persuasive that he's on board. Michael is on board because Michael knows the full story of what happened with Virgil. He witnessed it. So he would, of course, be on board. I think you've got some early converts here that could really build some steam for Kevinism. And uh, Sherry pointed out it would be hard for John not to be a believer in Kevin after shooting the guy point-blank and seeing him live. There is no reasonable explanation for what he witnessed. His son buried a very dead Kevin after he drank the poison, and he too saw him arise. The question isn't why do they think he's divine. It's does Kevin believe it as well, hence why he's willing to risk his life in the lake. And I do think that we're going to see this happen and develop throughout the course of this season. Kevin's growing admission or acceptance of himself as some sort of messianic figure, to me, seems like the central one of the central conflicts of this season. And then Josh, it's not hard to see and extend how that would play to Nora Durst. Yeah, of course. And is this why future Nora Durst wants nothing to do with the name Nora and wants nothing to do with the name Kevin?
0: Yeah, like this is a great opportunity to like pump the brakes uh on the whole theorizing about it's the apocalypse that I seem to be pretty pumped about, which I remain pumped about if that's where we're going. Um, But the like tamer version of that uh, or like the less catastrophic version of that is that this faith around Kevin really takes off. And for whatever reason that really grinds Nora Durst's gears and drives her away from being with Kevin. And when she's being asked, does the name Kevin mean anything to you, which might be like, a starting point that a lot of people who follow the book of Kevin go with uh, like that could just be like a kind of generic beginning sales pitch yeah uh, that of course she would say no because she just doesn't want to talk about it but she knows exactly like all too well what that's all about you could really see that outcome
1: absolutely one of the one of the tenets of a lot of the latter-day religions and I'm including uh, Islam and uh, and the LDS Church in this and both of those I think are, are are part of the the influence of the leftovers. Uh they are latter day prophets. They're worshiping the same God. Uh, the same God of the biblical Jesus, but they're not worshiping in in the same ways because they believe that the Gospels didn't end at the life of Jesus, that uh, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a latter prophet, that Joseph Smith, they literally call themselves the Latter-day Saints, and that they believe that God didn't stop talking to people after a certain time, that God continued to speak through other vessels in the world, and even Muhammad himself, and I know this is a story that Raisa Aslan told the writer's room of season three, when he first started hearing voices and God was talking to him in a cave, he thought he was crazy. He thought, no, I people don't hear voices. That doesn't happen. If I'm hearing voices, I'm nuts. Like, this isn't right. And it took him a while to reconcile that. The story with Joseph Smith and... You can make arguments for or against why this happened, but the story with Joseph Smith was he was constantly misinterpreting what he thought God was telling him. He said multiple times, like, I think I got that wrong. Like, I was wrong about that, and constantly going back and changing. I mean, he had something in the neighborhood of, like, uh, four score or some prophecies that he got from God, and many of which went back on previous prophecies. Now... There is a lot to be argued about with the historical details of that and was he doing it for a certain reason, but that's just because we're so close to it historically. We can look back and say, there's actually record of what happened there and it seems like you got a new prophecy because something else. And it's easier for us to poke holes in that because it is close historically. But over time, who knows what happens? Those details fade away and we are just left with the main elements of that story. These are things that I know are influencing the writer's room of The Leftovers. So it stands to reason that this is a thing that might be coming up on this season. And you're right. That could be the question from the nun. Uh, Does the name Kevin mean anything to you? Could be the starter for Kevinism. She's wearing, Josh, people have pointed this out. She's wearing a cross around her neck, but the cross has a charm with it of some sort. That looks like a man's head. Is it Kevin's? That That's the open question, right? Like, it looks like a man's head with a Christian cross, meaning, look, we have the same God generally, the same biblical God, but maybe Kevin is just a Latter-day prophet. Like, maybe Kevin is someone like these other Latter-day prophets who God continued to speak through, or he was a vessel for God on this earth in some way. And so it isn't so much about Kevin becoming Jesus, it's about Kevin becoming some kind of Latter-day prophet in the Christian or biblical God tradition, uh, the Abrahamic faith, if you will, uh, God faith tradition. So I don't know, man. I I think there's something there to it. One of the other things that got me uh, going on this, we had two other really good comments. One from Yaya. This, I think, is fantastic. Yaya said... In the cold open of season one, I interpret the woman at the grocery store searching for her departed son Sam to be analogous to Nora Durst, who lost her beloved family. In the cave woman open for season two, the woman who picks up the motherless child is also analogous to Nora Durst, who took up and cared for Lily. So in season three, it makes sense that the rooftop woman who loses the love of her family may be a metaphor for Nora, someone losing her family this season. If so, it makes sense that the name Kevin would mean nothing to her by the end. Yep. There is a, that is, I think that those three things being connected is at the fantastic call by Yaya, but it may be that she lost her family because they all bought into Kevinism, and she didn't.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, she's been around Kevin long enough to know you're no prophet.
1: Exactly. you're no prophet i know what what you're doing there i see what you're doing uh yeah that that could be that could easily be right that she is out she's just like i can't believe you think that you're something special like why do you think you're something special and what does that say about me if so and i'm out on kevinism
0: this kind of thing always seems to stick in norris craw too like anytime there's you know any attempt at some sort of like supernatural explanation of something or some sort of otherworldly explanation she typically doesn't buy it she's pretty cynical
1: yeah, that's the demon issue. That's uh, that's all these things that that does seem to be the sci- science. Nora seems to be a woman of science. Science yes. seems to be more influential for her. She works for the DSD. She's she's working with these very strict questionnaires. And if you'll recall, you're right. The religious question, the better place question. In one of her early episodes in season one, she is constantly getting the same answer out of people because of how she's asking the question. And that is causing false responses to the question and putting into people what she wants to believe and not the opposite. And it's the it's the question of, do you believe the departed is in a better place? And that is something that, as you're right, has always been something cynical Nora has pushed back against or her own beliefs have influenced how she's looking at the world at large. And so you could absolutely see a scenario where part of what's going on with Nora in the future is, look, as it is right now, Nora Durst would be a key figure in Kevinism, right? She is his, she is his second wife, if you will, or second Uh, lover in this respect. She played a key role in his life during the key events of Kevinism. Uh, And if she wants no part of it, that's the kind of person, Josh, who would move to a remote place in Australia, who would change her name so people who wouldn't know who she was, who would go completely off the grid to avoid any connection to this thing that she wants no part of. And by the way, I don't think it means that the apocalypse hasn't happened. If you're telling Kevin as a prophet story, the unfortunate thing about it is I feel like that ends in death. I feel like that ends in death for Kevin. And I feel like that ends in death almost as a martyr or the way a lot of these stories end, uh, Joseph Smith's story or, or, or any of them, uh, end with uh, the death of this figure. That's a key element of the mythology or of the story. So you can see a, a scenario where something bad happened as a result of Kevin feeling like he was this Messiah or he was this prophet, and he died, and she wants nothing to do with Kevinism. She wants to be away from it all. It is some horrible event that's happened, but it's passed, and she's now living in a little bit of relative anonymity. Maybe those messages of love are being sent to her by followers of Kevinism on the birds, and she wants nothing to do with it. There is that parallel, Josh, to the birds in the cold open. We see the religious figure looking at the birds, uh, looking at messages, maybe doing some augury, and we see him making a lot of his religious choices based on those birds. Nora is throwing those messages away without even looking at them, Josh. Yeah.
0: Well, I have a question for you. Tell me. Given all of that, and that Kevin would potentially have to be off the board in order for this religion to really take off, could you imagine a, a, a Leftovers series finale... Where Kevin isn't even in it. Could you imagine a version of this show ending with a final episode where Justin Thoreau's involvement is already complete?
1: Yes, I could absolutely. And the it's final kind of the episode. HBO
0: move. HBO loves that. HBO yes, the, the loves old six feet, to the old six feet under. Loves to you know like take at least a very important character off the board, uh, if not the important character off the board, with a few episodes still to go oh, uh, yeah. before you get there. So I w- I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked.
1: Did George Pelicanos of The Wire fame yes. write episode uh, seven of this season?
0: Yeah. No spoilers.
1: Uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, this this could be a thing. I, I think you're right. I think that fits with the HBO tradition. I think it would also be. As I said, I read that that Nora stuff the the older Nora the Sarah Durst stuff as more of an epilogue and if that's the epilogue to the book of Kevin if that's another book in the story of the of Kevin uh, then I could absolutely see that playing out I I think that another really good comment we had was from Eric Aldo who also really spurred this in me and said if you were to rephrase the question Nora is asked in the final scene of the episode is have you heard of our Lord and Savior Kevin Garvey how would you interpret the scene if following Kevin after he departed or not has become a major religion it could explain why Nora has isolated herself and why she doesn't seem to be happy at the church Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean it I think it fits I think it really fits and I think that if you think about everything that we've done in season one and season two of the show It finds a way to make all that relevant. What if this show, Josh, is not only about the story of the birth of a religion or the story of a birth of of some kind of path of faith, but the aftermath of that on the larger world level and on the smaller personal level? Nora Durst is the personal version of that story. The larger world would be Kevinism at large. I mean... Kevin has had visions. Kevin's been followed around by some sort of spirit that was attempting to cause him to harm himself. Uh, he rises or his ride. The rise of Kevinism would have been a time of religious and cultural upheaval. Um, we know he's had these crazy re- resurrections. He's died and visited a spiritual realm and freed a spirit from damnation Uh, in this episode we see him stopping a a public stoning or this huge fight by jumping into a poisoned river and getting baptized you can see already like you can hear the wheels in Matt's head turning writing the story of the baptism that the baptism occurred in the middle of this fight which could have led to death and chaos and all of this and it was our savior Kevin who stepped up and jumped into the poisoned water and was baptized and, and saved everyone and calmed everyone down yeah yeah. I mean, these are all stories. It's all very evocative fitting. already.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I mean, like Matt has that great line of like, all of it happened. It's still happening. Uh, which which falls in line with your idea of like, you know, you know, the the stuff of ancient legend is, you know, obviously hugely important. But it doesn't mean that miraculous things aren't still happening. Um, so yeah, you could see all of that feeding into the book of Kevin very, 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 very easily. And that being something that gets widely adopted.
1: Well, and if that's the case, I think what we'll see more of in these final seven episodes are more crazy things happening with Kevin, right? Because we need to continue to build out the you story. You would hope
0: so. You would hope so, because like, that's, the, that's the show. Uh, hopefully we haven't seen the last crazy Kevin thing. Maybe the last kinky Kevin. <laughs> but maybe, I, I I hope we haven't seen the last of crazy
1: Kevin. But I, I, I love the idea that you could go back now and rewatch season one, including all of the crazy ramblings of Kevin Sr., and maybe draw a book of Kevin value from those seasons. Scenes, right maybe draw Kevinism value from those interactions uh, it is really fascinating that the book is still being written because as we said that means we're going to see more crazy incidents I do think that also means that at the end of it Kevin dies like that seems to be the end of this story for me I will say one of the other things that really stuck out to me as I went back and watched International Assassin what are the four outfits do you remember the four outfits in the closet that Kevin is given the choice of
0: International assassin costume, uh, police officer uniform. Correct. A priest uniform. A priest
1: uniform and a guilty remnant uniform.
0: And a Guilty Remnant. The
1: priest uniform is the key one. The key one is is the priest because that doesn't seem like a role that we know Kevin Garvey or or could see Kevin Garvey leaning into. The Guilty Remnant doesn't seem as likely, but his wife is there. His daughter was drawn in by it. He certainly has been very attached to Patty and everything that's going on with that. And him giving into the Guilty Remnant would probably mean him dying, I would imagine. Uh, I don't know. But Kevin Garvey as a priest, that part didn't really fit and there is an alpha and omega symbol on that priest garment god or jesus if you depending on how you're reading it In the book of Revelation says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, That person is riding on a pale horse. Some people say that's death. Some people say it's not. Kevin rides a white horse in this episode, Josh. That's
0: right. He does. The
1: fourth episode of The Leftovers is called BJ and the AC. When we podcasted about it, we thought BJ stood for baby Jesus because that's the episode about the stealing of the baby Jesus. We wondered if the AC was the Antichrist. And that certainly seemed to be what was happening with Lily Wayne, with the baby of, of Christine. Like that baby, that's an episode that leans heavily into that baby being important and that baby possibly having this AC power. But what if, Josh, what if Kevin's not a prophet for good? What if there are people that are going to sign this Antichrist value to Kevin?
0: Well, that would fall in line with everything we love about the leftovers, which is the duality, the ambiguity, and the fact that you can interpret almost anything on this show however you want, and it's hard to challenge you. <laughs> so, for some people, he could be the messiah. For some people, he could be the world ender, uh, and that would be that would be completely consistent with everything that's great about the leftovers.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think there's a, I mean, there's at least a possibility that we'll get into that at some point. Uh, if you, if you look at <laughs> what The art is for season three of The Leftovers, the poster that says, pray for us. I think it will become the image for this podcast if it hasn't already. Uh Uh, I know we're working on that. But it is Kevin and Nora standing there. Nora is standing behind Kevin. Kevin is standing. And there are wings emerging on the famous cracked wall, which was the art for The Leftovers season one. There are wings that are either Kevin's or Nora's or both of theirs. There is religious iconography front and center at this uh, at this at this season, and the same thing the other the other iconography they used was a neon cross. That said, the end is near, uh, and that, that again, religious iconography with this season. So we're here; it's happening; uh, it's continuing to happen. It matters. The effort is underway, Josh. I think the question is ultimately: what happens with this book of Kevin? Will he embrace it? Will other things happen that lead him to this position when he, you know, if he goes to Australia, and will he ultimately make some choice which ends his life and upsets Nora to the point that she wants nothing to do with the Kevinism? that arises in the wake of this. Look, if the guilty remnant can get a foothold, certainly Kevinism could get a foothold.
0: The other thing, though, is like I can't imagine that you know, the book of Kevin spreads far and wide, and Kevinism, if that's what we're calling it, like, I, that can't be a thing that really catches fire with Kevin Garvey still alive, or at least with Kevin Garvey in any kind of public life. Uh, like, he would have to have his own pseudonym. He would have to have his own secret identity. He would have to have his own, I don't know, Sarah Garvey situation going on there. Uh, because we, I can't imagine Kevin being like a like a capable leader in this field like that just does not seem like kevin garvey then again a lot can change in decades
1: it's true we laughed a lot about in the in the recap episode about how imagine if you thought kevin garvey was the messiah and then he just walks in is like are you looking at porn like and he's just doing kevin garvey stuff like wearing a burger king he's literally wearing a crown josh like he's wearing a burger king crown on the porch and telling old stories like it would be it will be fascinating to see. That's why I don't want Kevin to just disappear to Australia without his crew behind him. Because I want this season and series of this season to be about, uh, or, or season of this series to be about. Kevin may be looking into this and and looking at it like the peanut butter sandwich and being like, maybe there is something to this. We've seen the constant flashes of International Assassin. It's something on his mind. He's undergoing his own rituals to test the elements of this seemingly. I would love to see them trailing behind him at all costs and maybe encouraging him to do things he wouldn't normally do because he thinks he's special or spiritual. It's fascinating to think about because I believe in season one, the conflict between Kevin and Kevin Sr. And what we hear is, Kevin Sr., the crazy person, telling Kevin, you're special. They need you. Like, there are people that need you for a purpose. They're sending someone to help you. And we see Kevin Sr., the normal person in the Garvey's at their best, saying, you know what, son? You need to realize you're not special. Like, there's nothing about you that's unique. Just live your life and be happy in that life. Don't be searching for some more meaning to it. I love that the leftovers may have found a way to craft an ending to this series that adds so much meaning to all that stuff from season one because like i said going into season two on a rewatch i thought well the downside of this is other than emotionally none of the stuff from season one matters because kevin is seeing patty now and he's clearly nuts so this question of is he nuts is it medicine what's going on all the stuff in season one out the window because here we are with the ghost in season two I love the idea that they could find a way to make all that season one stuff matter. And I also love that they may never answer that for us. Because like you said just now, that's the leftovers, right? Present a whole bunch of information to us. Let, it, let us interpret it the way that we want. That's so meta of Damon Lindelof. And it's so brave. And I, if that's the ending for this show, I, I think it would be a really good ending. Part of why I'm jazzed about this is I think it would, if they would find a way to make that. that this would really work.
0: Yeah, I'd be down for that. I think I think it's I think it's a cool possible ending. And it adds a lot of I don't know when you read that final Nora scene or Sarah scene, or Matt Sarah scene, you know, when you're reading (laughs) when you're when you're reading that through the lens of the book of Kevin, and that that being something that has caught fire. uh, It's pretty powerful. I love the idea. I love the idea. I just think that it, I just think it's great, and I, I I hope that that's you know that's definitely one of a few options that I think would be really really cool to see play out on a large
1: scale. Let's uh, let's wrap this by talking about one key element of that Matt Saracene or uh, Saracene. Our Philly, our, our buddy, said this app reminded me in many ways. I'm sorry. This is <laughs> – I don't want to read this. <laughs> I guess I'll read it. I guess I'll read it. Uh, it is not something that – Now you have to. I don't want to lean into this, Josh. I don't want to find a way to tie both of these things together somehow. But yet, he... Are
0: you tying the dogpocalypse into the book of Kevin? Okay.
1: Our Philly says, I'm obsessed with the currency Sarah receives after delivering the doves. The nun gives her, quote, a little extra, but it doesn't appear to be any type of conventional cash. It looks like a fold of leather straps with brass bindings. Seriously, guys, I need to know if I'm losing my mind here. Were those dog collars?
0: Oh, I thought that he was going to say dog leather.
1: <laughs> Were those dog collars, Josh? I don't know. I does, don't Kevin, know. Straight... does Kevin sacrifice himself to a pack of dogs as the ending of the book of Kevin? <laughs> And then (laughs) then Sarah Durst is collecting these collars and she's going to collar every dog in the world as revenge on the wild dogs eating Kevin, Kevin Garvey.
0: I feel like Kevin Garvey is a great name for a dog, by the way. Like, if anyone has gotten a dog recently and you're struggling with what to name your dog, I think Kevin Garvey is just a fantastic name for a dog.
1: Yes. Also, question your life choices. But that's that's neither here nor there. Uh-
0: that's neither here nor there. But yeah, maybe Kevin is going to, I don't know, merge with the dog gods and create a brand new species. And that's what everyone's going to be following.
1: <sighs> is that how we're going to end this podcast?
0: Yeah, that's how we're going to end the podcast. So-
1: <laughs> So what's a hashtag people should use (laughs) to talk about all of this nonsense? it!
0: I don't
1: know. We had uh, New Kink. We had Kinky Kevin. We had Jump the Dog, Peanut Butter Conspiracy.
0: I think Jump the Dog is pretty good. Hashtag Jump the Dog. And you can tell us if you think the leftovers would be jumping the dog by having the dog apocalypse or not. Maybe you see the dog apocalypse. Maybe you see it coming. Maybe you see this as a realistic possibility. And if you do... You seem like you have a great view of the world. I, I would, lo- I would, I would love to get in. I didn't. That. I
1: couldn't even read the craziest uh, dog theory. But if you're Justin Curry uh, and you sent the comment in, I would encourage you to go to postshowrecaps.com uh, and leave that as a comment on the episode a page for this particular feedback episode. Because I think your your theory about dogs deserves to see people reading it. Just not me.
0: Just not you. <laughs> you're so out. You're so I'm out. I'm so on out. The dog. This is
1: a, look, Justin's theory was fun, but I can't read it. I just can't.
0: It's also a great signal for everybody to just be writing about the dog apocalypse for the rest of our time podcasting about the leftovers. You've opened yourself up to this. You have to know.
1: Yeah, it's my it's my dog whistle. Like I'm going to hear it <laughs> no matter where it is. It's going to be shrill noise in my ears if you're talking about the dog apocalypse, so it's something that's real.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we will talk about the dog apocalypse probably not too much when we come back with our next podcast about the leftovers unless there's a major development. In which case, we're going to have no choice. Uh, that's just going to be where we are, Antonio, and you're going to have to accept it. I
1: understand. What I would really like is if the the climactic moment of this season is not a Deus ex-Dog, and we just have a bunch of dogs showing up to to save the day or something. I really don't want that. Not that other shows have done something crazy like that by throwing something completely ridiculous into the climax of a season, but I really don't want to see that here.
0: Well, the the next episode, episode two of season three, uh, happening on Sunday night, it is entitled Don't Be Ridiculous, which is also what Antonio is going to be shouting at his screen in the final episode of The Leftovers when the dogs take over. Wait, that's them. what it's called? It's called Don't Be Ridiculous. Well,
1: that's, um, isn't that from Perfect Strangers? Like, I'm not joking. Like, isn't that Baki's yeah, well- catchphrase from Perfect Strangers?
0: I don't know. I'm not a big Perfect Strangers guy, but Perfect Strangers has obviously great relevance. Well, we talked about it. Leftovers. Yeah. Like this,
1: we're looking for our Perfect Strangers moment in season three. Maybe it's just a, maybe it's just an episode title. I didn't know that. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Don't be ridiculous. That's, I'm pretty weird. sure that's
1: a catchphrase from Perfect Strangers. I'm old enough that I remember, unfortunately. Okay. Well, there you go. <sighs> Boy, this, this whole season is going to be like this, isn't it? We're going to limbo off what? our way through seven more episodes. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's just a question of do you like to Lindelof or
1: not? Well, I found out that they were watching Mr. Robot and Rick and Morty while they were writing this season, so the dogpocalypse could be in full effect, Josh. They're, they could be major, uh, major like twists and turns in full effect, uh, so I guess I should be ready for anything.
0: Be ready for anything. Be ready for anything next week when we come back with our episode two recap. That should be dropping on com around Monday morning, I would guess. We'll record that as soon as we watch the episode on Sunday night. Make sure you don't miss an episode of the Leftovers podcast, postshowrecaps.com slash Leftovers iTunes to subscribe on iTunes or to subscribe with any other podcatcher of your choice. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash feed slash Leftovers. Uh, if you want to submit feedback for the next feedback show, we would love that Post Recaps.com slash feedback is our feedback form. We also have a fancy new email address, the leftovers at postshowrecaps.com, or it's leftovers at postshowrecaps.com. Just send it to both of those guys. Uh, and you, one, of, one of them will, will deliver it to us. Uh, Antonio is on Twitter. He's at AC Mazzaro. I'm at Round Howard. Tweet us. Hashtag jump the dog if you got to the end of this podcast. Anything else, Antonio? No,
1: we get your messages. We don't just throw them in a bucket and never read them.
0: That's true. That is what we do.
1: All right, thanks for listening, everybody, and please leave feedback, star ratings at iTunes. We appreciate that. Your subscriptions are great. We were in the top five in TV and film podcasts. Wow, look at that. Yeah, pretty dope. So we certainly appreciate everybody. The numbers are everybody good. Everybody tuning in. Yeah, look, Josh, we got a sponsor. We're used car salesmen now. <laughs> oh, I like it. I always wanted to be like, That's a thing we're doing now. So things are looking up here, I guess, depending on the way you look. But yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, that's only fair because this episode of The Leftovers also ended with people looking yes. up. Yes. Uh, so with that, we are looking forward to our next Leftovers podcast. Take care, everybody. Goodbye.
2: Everybody is wondering what and where they all came from. Everybody is worrying about where they're going to go and the whole thing's done. the mystery be Some say once gone you're gone forever and some say you're gonna come back Some say you rest in the arms of the savior if in for ways you lack Some say that they're coming back in a garden bunch of carrots and little sweet I think I'll just let the mystery be everybody is wondering what and where they all came from everybody is worried about where